This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. This week on the program, we kick off what has to be one of the most anticipated interviews really in the history of the program. Our guest is the amazing Bruce Rucks. He is the author of the mind-blowing book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens. And he's joining us here on the program for an extended conversation that we're calling the Rucks Trilogy a three-episode arc that totals nearly six hours of material, and making this even more remarkable is that this is his first interview since the year 2000, nearly a decade, and that really makes the whole interview cool for me because now we're sort of introducing Bruce Rucks to a whole new generation of people and reintroducing him to many, many people who enjoyed his books and have kind of been wondering where he's been at for so long. I have to give Bruce Rucks huge props here and huge thanks. He has to be easily one of the most generous guests we've ever had on the program. Essentially, we tape the interview over the course of three weeks in two-hour installments, pretty much how you're going to be hearing the show yourself. We would do about two hours, and there would always be a lot of notes left. And Bruce would say, hey, let's just do it again next week, same time. And that's what we did And when you're dealing with Hollywood vs. the Aliens, this is a 600-page book, my friends. This thing is massive. And as I said, Bruce hasn't done an interview in nearly a decade. So as you can imagine, we had a lot to talk about in this marathon interview. Now here this week, you're going to be hearing Volume 1, which we're calling The Prelude. And the reason we gave it that subtitle is because really it sets the stage for the whole interview, sort of lays down the foundation of the Rux trilogy and what Hollywood vs. the Aliens is all about. This week we're going to be covering Bruce's general thesis behind the book, and that is that the government and intelligence agencies within the government have been using films and television shows in a concerted effort to shape the public's understandings and feelings on the UFO phenomenon. Throughout sort of the first half here of Volume 1, we're going to be covering the basic tenets which Bruce believes to be at work behind the UFO enigma, including E.T. Greys as robots, ancient astronauts, mind control used in abductions, and a Mars-Martian connection. We're then going to move into the beginnings of this education program, as Bruce sees it, with the 1938 Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast. We're going to hear about the few thoughtful UFO-related films of the early 1950s, From there, we're going to talk about how things just flipped on a dime right after the Robertson panel with a huge wave of silly UFO movies that began in 1953 and went well on into the 1960s, if not beyond. And wrapping up the conversation this week, we're going to talk about the change that happened in the early 1960s with thoughtful TV programming coming about regarding the UFO phenomenon, specifically the series The Outer Limits. So that's all here in part one. As we said, the prelude, 
Volumes 2 and 3, I'll preview those for you at the end of the episode because I know you want to hear from Bruce Rocks. You've been waiting quite a long time to hear from Bruce, and you're going to be hearing from him here in just a moment. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bruce Rocks, allow me to give you a little bit of background on him. He sent me a richly detailed bio, and I'm just going to sort of hit the highlights here for you. Definitely want to stop by the BOA audio show page for Volume 1 or 2 and 3 to get a look at Bruce Rux's bio, but here's sort of the highlights. Bruce Rux was an actor for 20 years. He's still current on his actor's equity card, though he hasn't performed on stage since the early 1990s. He appeared in perhaps 80 shows, winning numerous acting awards in several states. He's also an accomplished and award-winning playwright, having written several plays. For the past 10 years, he's been an upscale security officer, USO, for Wackenhut. Bruce has studied UFOs his entire life. After the Mars Observer probe failure of August 1993, Bruce wrote to share his findings with several researchers in the field and with a few elected representatives. As a result, he found himself invited on ancient astronaut author Zachariah Sitchin's first tour of Egypt in the spring of 1994. It was during that trip that Bruce decided to write a book containing the results of his own UFO research and conclusions, which resulted in Architects of the Underworld. Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies on Mars, and the Mystery of the Sphinx, published in 1996. The following year, he wrote a companion volume that turned out to be even more massive, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, the motion picture industry's participation in UFO disinformation. Both were published by Frog Books in Berkeley, now part of Random House, and are available via Amazon.com. Unfortunately, Bruce does not have a website. He has no web presence So I can't give you a website to plug here. All I can say is go to Amazon.com and pick up Hollywood vs. the Aliens, pick up Architects of the Underworld. I was completely blown away by Hollywood vs. the Aliens, and I think after hearing the Rux trilogy, you will be too, and you're going to want to read it yourself. I can almost guarantee you that next season, Bruce Rux will be back on the show to talk about Architects of the Underworld. So you may want to stay ahead of the curve right now and pick that up as well. And now, without any further ado... Let's rock and roll. This installment was recorded on May 22nd, 2009. Bruce Rocks, talking about Hollywood vs. the Aliens, on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Mall of America Audio. Prepare yourselves for what will definitely be a marathon conversation. I can tell you that right off the bat. Our guest is the amazing Bruce Rocks. He's the author of Hollywood vs. the Aliens and Architects of the Underworld. Uh, I haven't got my hands on Architects yet, but I will soon, and hopefully we'll be talking about that in Season 5. But here, for this super lengthy conversation, we're going to be talking about Hollywood vs. the Aliens. A whole look at the motion picture industry's participation in UFO disinformation over the course of uh, multi-decades. We're talking... Oh, geez, you know, turn of the century stuff all the way up to 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and up to the late 90s, all in Hollywood vs. the Aliens. So we got a lot to talk about. (laughs) And uh, the really cool part about this interview, too, was much like our Swedish ufology guest, ironically enough, who we had a couple weeks ago, the idea of bringing Bruce on the show came to me from a BOA Audio listener who wrote to me way back in... Uh, December of 2006, believe it or not. So well, this is a two-and-a-half-year uh, interview in the making. And, you know, so I sort of put Bruce in the basket of folks to get in touch with, and, and we wrapped up Season 2. 
And I was like, where's Bruce Rucks? I can't find him anywhere. He hasn't done any interviews in a while. He doesn't have a website or anything. I mean, this guy's off the grid. And uh, I couldn't be happier for him because, to be honest with you, if I could get off the UFO grid, I'd be happy sometimes. But <laughs> but he was off the grid, and, I, you know, I couldn't find this guy. So fast forward, a year goes by. We're close to wrapping up season three. And finally, I get a hold of Bruce Rucks. I find him after, you know, a Boba Fett-esque hunt for Bruce Rucks. I finally track him down. And then I got my hands on the book, and it's like 600 pages. So we had to put Bruce on the back burner so I could really sit down and read this book, first of all, and digest it, because it's a massive tome that uh, he should be really proud of, because it's amazing. And it's the kind of book that I wish I could have written. So, you know, we talked way back during season three, and he said, you know, let's do it when you have some time and, and when you're ready to really uh, rock this thing out. And finally, you know, here we are for season four, wrapping it up. And uh, I'm so excited to have him on the show. His book's amazing. Hasn't done an interview, as far as I can tell, anywhere uh, since the summer of 2000. So this is his first interview in almost a decade. And I'm just thrilled that we could bring him here on the program and really present to you an amazing amount of material. This is going to be a showcase uh, for the ages, my friends. Bruce Rucks, after an introduction like that, I don't know what else to say. Thank you for coming on Banal of America Audio. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. My pleasure. Pleased to be here. Before we dive into Hollywood versus the aliens, for all those folks you know, who aren't familiar with you and, and don't know about what you are all about and what you've been up to, why don't you tell people who is Bruce Rucks? And, you know, how did you get interested in the UFO phenomenon, and how did Hollywood vs. the Aliens come about? Well, I work for Wackenut Security, so any of the conspiracy theorists that want to, you know, speculate may speculate. But <laughs> I'm an upscale security officer, USO, which means that I wear a blazer and just, you know, a general nice kind of outfit. I don't wear any kind of gun or badge or anything like that. Uh, and I do, you know, just kind of meet and greet type of security. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so, I would say. Uh, the way I got into UFOs, uh, that's kind of a, a lengthy topic. Uh, I've been studying it since I was a kid. Like back in the 1960s, occasionally you'd come across a paperback book here and there, be some mass paperback, and it was usually cheaply printed. And uh, it would quickly get consigned to a junk pile, but I would come across these and read them because I was interested. And uh, I caught up as much as I could back then. But I was a kid. You know, There's only so much I could comprehend. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I continued studying it a bit through junior high, uh, on and off. I got involved in ancient astronaut research at that time, which I thought was incredibly interesting. And obviously is the direction that I moved off in as far as UFO research goes. Yeah. I'm convinced that's the correct path. It was not steady research. I mean, it wasn't like an obsession or a passion or anything. It was just something that, like a lot of other subjects, I picked up uh, over the years and uh, gradually assembled my own views on it until I had enough evidence that I thought, yeah, I think this is it and I'm reasonably convinced that I am. The um, personal view, I would call it, I happen to know someone who I'm absolutely positive is an abductee, and I have since spoken with them. I had not spoken with them before I wrote my book, uh, or books, I should say, uh, but I have bumped into them not too long ago. And mind you, I hadn't seen this person in, I don't know, 15, 20 years, long time. Yeah. But I grew up with them, and they told me a story at one point that had to do with an extremely bizarre nocturnal visitation. And I did not doubt this person's story at all. They never said anything about UFOs. UFOs had nothing to do with it. They never said they were in a flying saucer. They never said they were in outer space. In fact, they said they had been abducted by a succubus. And this was a girl who was telling me this. Huh. And uh, I specified, well, you know, an incubus is a male demon. And she said, yeah, I know that, but this thing was female. And she gave me these 
really apt descriptions. And I didn't know exactly what to make of this story. Uh, I was quite positive that she wasn't lying to me, because her emotional affect was uh, pretty much in line with someone who had been raped. Uh, and she w she's just not a good enough actress to put that on. She wouldn't know what to do anyway. Yeah. But I recognized the symptoms. So I listened very seriously, and I really didn't know what to make of it, but I stuck it in the back of my head and said, well, whatever this is, this merits some kind of further study at some point. Well, sure enough, years later, David Jacobs came out with his first book, uh, Secret Life, and more than any other book that I have read, I think that outlines the abduction phenomenon just about perfectly, because absolutely everything that she had told me, and this was decades before he had written this book, was exactly what he was writing in this book, some of it word for word. And it was coming from all kinds of different people, and that was the point where I said, ah, now I've got a handle on this. And one of the things that he brought up was that it's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It's not some random pickup. But UFO abductions are literally lifelong experiences. They begin in childhood and frequently even infancy. At least the vast majority of them do. Yeah. And that kind of put me in the right direction as far as study went. Uh, that led me to such things as CIA mind control experiments and stuff like that. Uh, one of the reasons that you would want to pick somebody up repeatedly, and every UFO abduction researcher has said that anyone who was picked up is mind-controlled. That's part of the process. Well, mind-control requires uh, repeat visitations to kind of keep the wiring solid, if you will. Yeah. So, yeah, of course they would pick up the same people and keep coming back to them over and over again. And what this person had been telling me, I was absolutely convinced, had to be a UFO abduction. Now, I never suggested that to them. Like I said, I wasn't even in contact with them. They'd moved to another part of the country. I hadn't seen them in ages. I wrote my books, and many years after I wrote my books, so I guess this was just a few months ago, she tracked me down, and we talked about this. And uh, she is also convinced that that is the case. Uh, but she didn't know at the time any more than I did. Huh. But that's kind of the, the personal angle of what got me researching this. Interesting. Interesting. Wow, that's strange. I guess, you know, just the sort of lighthearted question you know, to follow up the bio background is, where have you been, Bruce? The book came out in 1997. You don't have a web presence or anything. <laughs> uh, I, I'm on the web all the time, you know, but I don't know how to get web pages set up and all that. And uh, I didn't use, I, I just never really had a lot of money. So uh, I wasn't looking around trying to find someone to establish a web page or anything of that nature. And I figured if anyone really needed to contact me, uh, they could always contact me through the publisher. I mean, you can always write them and they'll forward it. So uh, that and... I debated whether or not I was going to release the books under my own name because you obviously attract a lot of kooks in this field. Yeah. So I'm not exactly hiding. I'm just not tossing myself out there. Yeah, well, that's commendable in a way, too, because, you know, especially in the UFO field, it's like there's a lot of self-promoters who are over the top and everywhere. So <laughs> The vast majority, actually. <laughs> exactly. And if they're not self-promoters, then they're people who are deliberately, they're not accidentally, they are deliberately trying to sow disinformation on this subject. Yeah, seems like there's a lot of that going on as well, and, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get into that. Before we sort of dive into the, the book discussion, I first just want to put you over huge, as folks probably could ascertain from the introduction. I'm just completely blown away by this book. Uh, I am the master of hyperbole on this show, but I do try to hold back on this term that I'm going to use on this book. It is a masterpiece, my friends. you got to go out and get it. I don't care how you get it. Sometimes it's on Amazon. Sometimes it isn't. It's a little confusing, but you should be able to get your hands on Hollywood vs. the Aliens, and I'd call it a must-read for anybody interested in the UFO phenomenon and especially interested in the on-the-ground perspective of the UFO phenomenon. This is really about the people and how the people are dealing with the UFO phenomenon in all different angles, the entertainment industry, the government, and you know the people who watch TV and movies 
So uh, it's a must-read, amazing, blew my mind completely, and uh, i got to just take my hat off to you, Bruce, for just a tremendous job on this book. The research is unreal. I mean, how, how many movies do you think you mention or chronicle in the book, would you say? Uh, I'd say there are probably over 500 in there anyway, <laughs> and all but a very small handful I've actually seen. Wow, and, and TV shows too, I mean, just like, oh, yeah. it's an amazing, just... It's just amazing, and in a way, too... That was too, before DVDs, too. I was doing all this on VHS tape. That was a little costly. I know, I know. Actually, yeah, I was going to say, the book is almost quaint in a way, because, you know, it came out in 1997, pre-9-11, really at the very beginning of the Internet boom, so I don't even know if there's... You know, I was looking earlier today to see if I could find any mention of the Internet in the book, but I, there may be something in the introduction, but otherwise, you know, no Internet references, really, and... And uh, obviously, you know, so much has changed since 1997 that it was, like, amazing. And, of course, we're going to get into, you know, post-Hollywood versus the aliens and what you think is going on since the publication of the book, of course, a little bit later on here in our conversation. But, yeah, I definitely thought the book was uh, it was like a time capsule and an amazing journey through the years of movies and TV and how this UFO thing has been portrayed over the years, which is something, actually, that I had thought of as something I wanted to write a book about, like, uh, you know, before I'd, yeah, before I'd heard of you, before someone wrote to me and said I should interview you, they were like, Hollywood versus the aliens, and I was like, oh no, this guy wrote my book. <laughs> well, you, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry if I stole your thunder. <laughs> well, you did a better job than I would have done, I'm sure, so, I mean, the book is just amazing, and uh, I, I just can't put it over enough. I hope folks go out and, and pick it up and read it. At the risk of over simplifying everything, I guess let's sort of just boil down the general thesis of Hollywood versus the aliens for folks who are just coming into their own here and coming into the interview and, and finding out what we're going to be talking about, you know, sort of give them a thumbnail look at, at, you know, what is Hollywood versus the aliens all about? Well, first off, I'm operating from the premise that the government knows all about UFOs. Uh, at least they know, they know that they're out there. They know that they are not from Earth. Uh, they've been studying it since at least 1947, probably considerably before. Roswell was real. Uh, we definitely did pick up some crash wreckage of an extraterrestrial vehicle. And uh, the government scurried behind the scenes to create their own uh, secret research groups for a number of reasons, all of which make perfect sense. Uh, they were terrified, quite frankly. And that was not knowing the intentions of who was coming down here, just recognizing a superior power that can come into our airspace anytime they want. That's pretty scary. Plus, we've got some of their technology in our hands now, and we don't want to let anyone know that that exists. Uh, we want to exploit it as much as we possibly can, and the best way to do that is in secrecy. So with all of this working on them, the government assembled the best people they could in private to study everything that they possibly could to the maximum ability. And along the way, uh, they were deciding how best to eventually disseminate this material. They had a two-pronged problem. The first problem was we need to keep it secret, and the second problem was, eventually, we're not going to be able to keep it secret. So how do we deal with this? And the answer was, you ridicule it as much as possible. You use a two-pronged counterintelligence attack. You use misinformation and disinformation in order to keep people confused and off balance. And eventually, you're also kind of seeding in some actual information there from more credible sources so that they can begin learning about it along the way. And then in a very gradual process, 
by the time it does become public, it's not so much of a shock to everybody. And the means by which they do that is through the entertainment medium as well, you know, as, as well as other things, of course. But, but Absolutely. You know. Yes, Hollywood, especially the uh, Robertson panel, a CIA-convened panel of scientists in 1953, made that exact recommendation. They said Hollywood even recommended Walt Disney particularly. Yeah, it's long been discussed that he was in the intelligence community. I was stunned by just some of the names, too, throughout the book that come up repeatedly that you think may have also, you know, been dabbling in that sort of realm, including uh, Vincent Price was one of them that really stood out to me as a surprise. I was like, wow, this one I never even considered, and, and many other folks that we're, we're going to get into in a little bit. You probably don't really know this for a fact because of the, just the secrecy of it all, but sort of take me through a little bit how you think that influence, you know, was meted out by the intelligence communities. You know, did they bring the director in and, and tell them to do things a certain way, or did they have their hands on the writers, or, you know, was it sort of, you know, through the studio? You know, I'm sure it was sort of like all of the above. But Checkbox D, all of the above, yes. Technically, uh, what's a good way to put this? Uh, everyone was kind of scrambling on their feet as best they possibly could and trying to come up with the best way to deal with things. The CIA and the Air Force were formed very quickly after each other, right after the Roswell crash. Uh, that happened in July of 1947, and within a couple of months, the CIA was formed. Well, what do you suppose the CIA was formed to do? The CIA was formed to study all kinds of things, obviously. Uh, they, would, they were carrying on the work of the OSS in World War II, uh, but they weren't just keeping an eye on the Russians or just keeping an eye on the Chinese. They were keeping an eye on a far greater power that they couldn't tell anybody about, which is why they immediately got into such studies as mind control. They were doing that pretty much all the way from the beginning, and we had no reason to believe that anyone on Earth was using mind control. Uh, the CIA itself put out stories that the Chinese were doing it, and they had one of their embedded journalists write a story about something that was called She Now, which meant cleansing of the mind or washing the mind, which our brainwashing came up with. Mm -hmm. The thing is, that particular journalist was in the CIA's pocket, and he made that up. It was entirely a lie. There was not one word of truth to it. And the CIA admitted that itself in its own internal memos. They knew what they were doing. But they weren't just trying to scare people with the idea that the Chinese or the Russians might have some means of mind-controlling people. The point was, behind the scenes, they knew someone did have that technology, but they couldn't tell them who. So they were actually studying it. They weren't completely lying. Anyway, the point was, they were formed right after the Roswell crash in order to study this. The Air Force became a separate body very shortly thereafter. And the National Security Agency was formed in 1952, not long after, uh, specifically to study uh, superior foreign intelligence. And uh, the UFO uh, intelligence would definitely fit in that particular category. We have lots of documents attesting to the fact that the NSA was sort of a central clearinghouse for a long time. It was denied that it ever existed for decades. Any time that any casual mention might come up of it, and that was extremely rare, it was just denied that the National Security Agency existed at all. The NSA was joked as no such agency. But the truth was, yeah, not only did it exist, it was practically synonymous with the Defense Department itself. It's answerable solely to the president, uh, still to this day. It didn't have a charter when it was first created. A charter was come up with for it, I believe, four or five years after its creation. But that charter is still classified to this day, and no one is allowed to read it. They are answerable solely to the president. They are the central clearinghouse for this particular subject. There are numerous other agencies involved. Uh, the Central Intelligence Agency is definitely one of the top ones involved. 
uh, and has been all the way from the beginning. There can't be any question of that. But obviously they were operating in incredible secrecy and doing everything that they could to keep wraps on it. They didn't want that to get out. Yeah. To jump back, I guess, to to the question a little bit, I guess, how do you think the means was that they influenced these folks is what I mean, do you know? Like, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. For one thing, they had friends in high places. Let's just put it that way. These are people who had all fought the war together. Uh, they all had a lot of connections. Uh, they had a lot of government connections. So what do they do? They're all involved in their own private businesses and all of that, and some of them are getting involved in Hollywood or being specifically embedded in journalism. And uh, there were quite a many in journalism uh, and in Hollywood as well, as it turns out. So they didn't exactly have their thumb on them. They didn't need to. These are friends. These are people that have done work for them before. They were putting out war propaganda in World War II, uh, some excellent examples of which there were three or four movies talking about what a wonderful country Russia was during World War II because they were our allies. Like Song of Russia. I was like, oh, what a magnificent country. And then, you know, immediately after the war, uh, all of a sudden we're demonizing them. They're our enemies. And you see nothing but the red menace coming out. Yeah. This is all because of Hollywood's cooperation. As recently as the Bush administration, I have to give them credit for at least one thing. Very early on after 9-11, uh, the administration got up right in front of the TV cameras and said, Hollywood is cooperating with us in creating war propaganda. They just said it that boldly. <laughs> And uh, I have to give them at least that much credit. They were honest about that. But it had been going on since World War II. This was nothing new. So obviously, if you have something even more important, like the UFO menace, if you want to call it that, uh, plainly, your people are probably going to cooperate with you and create whatever propaganda is necessary. Yeah. How privy to the UFO information do you think these guys are, or do you think they're just sort of like the intelligence folks just suggest certain changes? I would say a small number of them, and the higher up the chain they are, the likelier that possibility a small number of them know exactly what they're doing. Now, the ones beneath them are just taking their marching orders pretty much, and a lot of it does come down to influence, such as, well, I like this script, but you know, if we did this, and, you know, the writer is not going to fight with them or whoever they're dealing with because they want to get their stuff put up. Yeah. And there are numerous examples of that in Hollywood. As yeah. a matter of fact, there's an excellent example in uh, media print, Chester Gould, the creator of Dick Tracy. And he made all kinds of changes to Dick Tracy in order to get it put into publication. And he didn't like the changes, but he did them because his publisher, Joseph Madel Patterson, wanted them done. So, sure, he would do that because now he's making a name for himself. He's getting his stuff put out there. Yeah. Now, throughout all this history here from, you know, the 50s onward, has anyone in the entertainment business ever sort of come out and been like, you know, I think I was influenced by the government to change the story or they told me not to – to write the UFO story this way or that way. Have there been any sort of like whistleblower situations? Not whistleblowers in that sense, but there have been lots of stories out of Hollywood of how their scripts were changed in exactly the fashion that I'm describing. Uh, one in particular is The Thing from Another World, uh, which was one of the first UFO movies and the first serious UFO movie, certainly. In the original story of that, if you saw the remake that John Carpenter made of The Thing, you had this you know massive, shape-changing, horrible creature that could become anything it wanted to become. Well, in the original movie, going you know, all the way back to 1950, they wanted to do the exact same thing. But they kept saying, well, we can't do that. Well, we can't manage the special effects. Well, we don't like this. So they kept changing the alien. They had to come up with an alien. And from up high on the production chain, the word kept coming down, well, change it like this, change it like this, change it like this. And what it came down to was a classic flying saucer and something that looked like the Frankenstein monster or like a giant version of a UFO gray. Huh. He's bulletproof, bombproof, blastproof. 
pretty much flame-proof. In the end, they have to wipe the thing out with electricity, which, you know, if you were wanting to equate something to, say, a robot, uh, an electrical overload might have something to do with that. It's just a very interesting number of changes that are brought about in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And you segue perfectly here into one of the things I noted in the book is a recurring theme, and I think uh, you'll definitely be able to make the case for it pretty strongly, I'm sure. I don't want to be presumptuous, but I'm I'm 99% positive this is your belief that the E.T. Greys aren't necessarily biological creatures, but they're some kind of robots. I'm certain of it. Biologically, they're completely absurd. Uh, Let's just take a look at them physically for a moment. These things are in craft that are traveling at supersonic speeds and hypersonic speeds, making right angles, uh, zipping off in different directions, stopping on a dime. This would pulverize any pilot. And we even have uh, some records from the FBI of UFO crash recovery where they talk about three occupants having been pulled up that were wrapped like um, crash test dummies, sort of, or wrapped like uh, test pilots, rather. And they're short, they're squat, they're little, you know, three to five foot tall gray guys. But they're able to survive these incredible speeds, all this type of thing. Their eyes are enormous. And if, if we're looking at an anthropological being, which... It looks like an anthropological being. It's got a head, it's got two arms, it's got two legs, it's got a torso. In other words, it's probably something presumably like us, if it's biological. Yeah. But look at the size of its eyes. If its eyes are spherical, and there would be no reason to believe that they're not, because, after all, eyes are spherical in <laughs> like ourselves, well, it would take up the entire area that a brain could possibly be there. It would occupy its entire skull. So where the hell does it keep its brain? The things all look like they were formed out of a mold. They're able to survive different pressures, different uh, hypersonic speeds in their craft. The things are practically indestructible, just like the thing in the movie. They're blade-proof, blast-proof, bomb-proof, and we have numerous reports of people encountering UFO entities where they were shot at, and the bullets just plunked off, quote-unquote, like off a lead bucket or something like that. Yeah. And military reports the same type thing. You can strafe them like crazy. You might knock them down, but they're going to get right back up again, and you see that happen in movies, too. Uh, yeah, the things just do not appear to be biological in any way, shape, or form. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you raised one point, too, in the book when you sort of make the case for Grays as robots that I'd never really thought of, and that was just the whole breathing issue. Uh, you never really see them breathing, or at least they're never reported to be breathing. And that's a consistent report that comes from all kinds of, of uh, UFO abductees, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they're beings from, like, some other planet, chances are they just wouldn't necessarily be able to just come to Earth and breathe. You know, Not only but... would they not be able to breathe... Uh, How are they walking around here? Let's assume evolution here for a moment. What kind of planet would these guys have evolved on? In theory, they would have evolved on a lighter gravity planet. If they came here and they're walking around without some kind of pressure suit on, I'd think the pressure would kill them. Now, the gravity would, they look awfully spindly. I would think that the gravity would be a little hard for them to move around in, but it doesn't seem to be. And when they do move, they move, quote-unquote, like German soldiers in movies. This, again, is a frequent report. It comes up over and over and over again. They're kind of staggering around like they're on stilts. They move stiffly. They move awkwardly. They don't move realistically. And even when Bud Hopkins was doing research for, uh, on, uh, I'm trying to remember which one he put up, uh, as a miniseries on TV, Dan Curtis did it. Intruders, I think it was. I think so, yeah. Anyway, when they were making that, they were trying to make the aliens as close to UFO reports, abductee reports, as they could. The problem was they had to scrap those aliens because, quote-unquote, they looked like dolls or puppets. They weren't moving realistically. So they made something, you know, with eyes that blink and all this other type of stuff. But there are no reports of them blinking their eyes. There are no reports of any restrooms on board these craft. 
nothing about them seems to indicate anything biological at all. And in fact, biologically, they're just ridiculous. It sort of puts the whole ETH thing in a whole new light. You know, there's always been sort of a backlash against the ETH thing, and now it seems like it's growing more and more uh, in the last few years. But when you sort of reframe it with the robot idea in mind, it sounds a little more plausible, I guess you could say. Well, also, if you go back to the original documents, when you're trying to figure out who was studying this in the first place, if you take the MJ-12 documents, which are bogus, but if you take those as what's supposed to be the legitimate source for the UFO study group, mm -hmm. there's only one biologist on that entire list. I would think that the most important thing in a UFO crash, considering that the craft itself is wreckage by every single report, but also by every single report, we have at least one of the bodies pretty well intact, no matter how badly beat up the other two are. Well, just if this were me personally, I would really want to understand the biology of what was flying that. <laughs> yeah. So I would have a whole lot of biologists involved and probably very little of anything else. On the official documents, which are bogus, there's just one. That makes no sense. And when it comes right down to it, when you get down to the real list, and we don't have a complete real list, but there are some credible sources inside the government, in our government and others, uh, who have named some of the people that would have been involved. Kurt von Neumann is one of the people that comes up. Kurt von Neumann was a computer scientist. He was like the most advanced computer scientist in the world at the time. Jacques Vallée, who ended up involved in the program, is also now a computer scientist. He, he's an astrophysicist, an internationally known astrophysicist, but he's also equally known for computer science now. Why do you suppose that is? Why would they be bringing these people in? That is interesting. And then just to connect the dots a little bit, if we presume that the government knows more about UFOs and their occupants than anyone else, and that they would have recovered some kind of being or pilot of the the craft, whether it be Roswell or one of the many other purported UFO crashes, I guess they'd only really need one body to you know open it up, figure out that it's a robot. So Exactly. Now, the interesting thing about that particular body, the remains of the bodies, apparently three were recovered. That seems to be the consistent report. Of those, two were pretty badly beat up, and one seems to have been, I guess, partly protected one way or another or ejected soon enough. Uh, it was in reasonably good condition, but it was still pretty banged up. Now, a nurse was brought in at Roswell by people she had never seen before at the base. Uh, so she didn't know if they were doctors, she didn't know who they were, but they brought her in to look at some crash bodies. Now, she reported an overpowering smell, but she wasn't even sure that they were doing an autopsy. She wasn't sure whether they were dressed or not, or she thought they were doing an autopsy, and if they were doing an autopsy, plainly they would be undressed, but she couldn't tell. What she was describing, again, like we're talking about, was just biologically absurd. It still had its eyes. This thing has been lying out on the desert floor for a week by the time it's brought in, for at least six days before it's been found and brought in. It's been lying out on the desert floor. There's no mention of decomposition anywhere. And the eyes are still in it. Well, how would the eyes still be in it? The very first things to go are the eyes. Desert predators eat them. They're gone in no time flat. And they pretty much sink and hollow out, and they're gone real quick. They decompose fast. Yeah. Uh, so right there you have something that's absurd. She described their outer covering, as, and I think she used those actual words. She did not say skin. Uh, she said the outer covering was very pliable, which sounded kind of like plastic. She said you could push in on it and it pushed right back out again, but that they were physically hard. And she described them having suction cups on the end of their fingers, which was extremely interesting because the person I was talking about that got me thinking about this had described the exact same thing. I might add that, that the person I knew who was an abductee had not researched UFOs. That was just not in her purview. But she was describing the exact same thing. Huh. So, yeah, again, I have a biologically absurd thing. 
It's being attested to by someone who should understand biology pretty well. She's a nurse. But she's not describing it exactly in biological terms. She's not saying bones. She's not saying cartilage. She's saying something cartilage-like. She's saying uh, outer covering. She's not talking about skin. She's describing something that really doesn't make much sense biologically. And even she was not convinced that it was an autopsy. She didn't even know if it was dressed or not. She didn't know what the hell it was. <laughs> it just scared her. Yeah, you kind of almost think it's like maybe one of the biggest secrets of the UFO phenomenon or something that hasn't – like people have always sort of, I guess, considered that they're robots, but I'm surprised it hasn't really been given more thought, I guess, or hasn't taken its place you know, as one of the pillars of the – of the ideas of what they are. Do you know what I mean? It's actually a critical issue. I have heard abduction researchers half admit that they might be robots. They say that because they don't want to admit that. As soon as you say, that's a robot, then you are automatically saying, that is not an alien. It may still come from someplace else, but those are not the aliens. Whoever sent them are not necessarily these. They don't look like this. Yeah. We don't know, then, who sent them. What we're seeing is a remote-controlled puppet. It's a marionette. Mm -hmm. But then you don't know who's pulling the strings. <laughs> exactly. And then just to sort of build the bridge here to what we're talking about then, when you look at all these movies of the past, you know, five decades, almost six decades, maybe even more, and if you take into consideration that the intelligence agencies were pushing and shaping and, and, and molding certain stories, then you have to look at all these sort of robot stories in a whole new light, which is what you do in Hollywood versus the Aliens. And, uh, oh, yeah. It's amazing. And the continued presence of robots in the history of film and in the history of UFO stories is remarkable. And then it really makes you think. It sort of puts a light bulb in your head. It sort of ties it all together. Do you know what I mean? Like if the government well, very much so. would have known ahead of time before anyone else, because we're still – the UFO community still hasn't gotten on board the robot idea. Right, <laughs> because it's not profitable. First off, you don't want people to realize what it is, because if they start realizing what it is, they're going to figure other things out, and you don't want them looking at it at all in the first place. But if they are looking at it, you want them scared out of their minds, because if they're scared out of their minds, then you can be selling that to Congress and saying, oh my God, horrible, evil, reptilian space aliens intent upon eating our young alive and cutting them open to see what makes them tick and forcing them to reproduce and create alien hybrids and just doing every grotesque, vile, hideous thing imaginable, you're going to get all the money you want. Whereas if you say, you know what, this has been going on since the dawn of time, it's nothing new, we just happen to notice it now because we've got radar. And occasionally they crash. You're not going to get as much money. Yeah, and the other big sort of theme that runs concurrent with uh, the robots and the UFO connection throughout these films is Mars and ancient astronauts and that whole milieu, if you will. You're of the belief, I presume, that you know the government also knows that. that oh, absolutely. Mars is, is absolutely critical to understanding UFOs. You have to understand something. All the way from World War II, we wanted to get a hold of the best rocket scientists that we could get specifically so that we could go to Mars. You have to ask why. What was so important about Mars? But if you go back over the records, you find this all the way back to World War II. We wanted to get a hold of the German rocket scientists. So did the Russians, because we wanted to get to Mars by way of the moon. But Werner von Braun, for instance, wrote a book called The Mars Project, in which we send a team of astronauts to Mars. And what do they find? A bunch of people just like us living there. Lo and behold, this is pretty much what we knew was taking place. We probably knew it in World War II. We definitely knew it after Roswell. We have lost, up until recently, 
We lost all of our major probes to Mars, and so did the Russians. We also both lost a tremendous number of them to the moon as well. But Mars, definitely. We couldn't send a probe there and keep it going. Neither could the Russians. Not for very long. Yeah, the introduction really sort of lays out what we're talking about here right now and sets the stage for the movie discussion, which we're, <laughs> which we're going to get into in a minute. And uh, the introduction is almost like just a UFO book in and of itself, uh, just sort of looking at you know, where you stand on all these issues and really sort of sets the stage for what you think the government knew and then how they use that information in the process, uh, I guess you could say educational program or miseducational program at times, that was this Hollywood and TV thing. It's almost less a question of figuring out what they knew as when they found it out. Then it gets to be kind of a parlor game, because once you know the joke and you can see when people started picking it up, that's when you go back and say, all right, how exactly did they get this? And you start tracking it down and saying, wait a minute, this guy knew, this guy knew, and this guy knew. And then you start seeing how it goes back. The Nazis, for instance, uh, we wanted to get a hold of the German rocket scientists. The Nazis had to have known something about this. The Allies knew something about it. The Nazis knew something about it. Uh, this goes back into the ancient astronaut aspect of it uh, and into ancient mysticism when it comes right down to it. And the color is red, white, and black and associations with the planet Mars. You find it occurring with the Nazis all over the place. Uh, you've got the swastika, which is an old Hindu uh, luck symbol, among other things. You also find it around the rest of the world. It's an ancient symbol. They're using the colors red, white, and black, which have a mystical association. Uh, they're studying uh, all kinds of bizarre occult theories, or at least that's how they appeared to everybody else. And I read a book by Peter Lavenda that was talking about the Nazis and the occult and the sort of things that they were studying. And he went into detail on them. And he said, well, look at all this crazy stuff they were studying, A, B, C, D. And I realized as I was reading it, I said, wait a second, that's the index of my first book. I think I know what they found. <laughs> so you think this has been knowledge way back when, and, and then the Robertson panel sort of kicked off the program, if you will, uh, of shaping the public opinion of UFOs. Absolutely. That was where it became concrete policy. Now, it had already been implemented with Truman, and it was implemented with him in a couple of different movies. Well, three if you take when the movie was made as opposed to when it was released. And that was The Thing from Another World, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and War of the Worlds. Now, all three of these were serious UFO movies. They were serious flying saucer movies. They weren't a joke. They were kind of scary. Now, with the exception of Day the Earth Stood Still, which was scary in its own way, but it was not intended to frighten people in the sense that these guys are here to destroy us, the way that War of the Worlds or The Thing was. Uh, in fact, The Day the Earth Stood Still was extremely intelligent. You have a, a flying saucer, which is picked up coming into the atmosphere. The entire world sees it, and uh, it, it lands in the ballpark in Washington, D.C. opens up, and the entire military is there. Out comes some guy in a strange-looking outfit. They think he's uh, got some hostile intent. Somebody takes a shot at him. Fortunately, he's not killed. And we find out he looks just like us. He implies that he came from Mars. I think he said he came something like 250 million miles, which, yeah, Mars would be a good bet. That's like median distance between uh, when it's closest and when it's furthest away. And it's implied in the movie that he came either from Mars or Venus, but that they think he came from Mars. Well, this is exactly what the military came to its own conclusions with in Project Sign in 1948. It's pretty much word for word. We are not open to his message at the time. He's not hostile, and he's got a giant robot with him, which is pretty much indestructible and pretty damn scary. <laughs> And it's also completely under his control. This is obvious. He says he wants to meet with all the world leaders because, well, now we've joined the nuclear ball club. We understand how that works. And that makes us dangerous. So we've got to learn to get along with the rest of the galactic community or something might have to be done about it. But unfortunately, 
we can't even agree where we would have the meeting, let alone how we'd get everyone assembled to listen to him. So he decides to go underground and just assumes an identity, goes to a boarding house, meets some people, and eventually meets a scientist who can arrange the meeting that he wants. Of course, it all gets more detailed than that, but the point is it's a very intelligent presentation of what would happen if a superior civilization of human beings out there were trying to contact a bunch of people down here. They would be facing exactly these sort of problems, and that's probably how they would deal with them, which sort of explains the UFO abduction phenomenon. That's the equivalent of going underground. Yeah. It's like, well, we, we came overtly and you shot at us, <laughs> uh, and we can't exactly talk to you, so let's just get to know the locals and see what we can figure out from there. Yeah, and just refresh my memory, what year was that made originally? That was 1951. Okay. I believe, well, I'll have to check. I believe it's 1951. Now that we're sort of you know, uh, knee-deep here in the in the entertainment medium. Let me just jump back a little bit, I guess, to one of my favorite characters in the world of entertainment, Orson Welles. I'm a huge Orson Welles fan, and of course everybody knows about the big uh, oh, sure. production of War of the Worlds, and it's famous, it's infamous. How do you think this whole education process sort of tied in with that, you think? Well, this is where it gets interesting, and you have to ask yourself how far back the government knew any of this, because there could have been more than one ulterior motive for Wells doing that. Now, I think historically everyone looks at it and says, oh, it was just an accident, or, uh, oh, he was pulling a big publicity stunt. Now, where either of these things could be true, and there is some reason to believe that they might be, there is also reason to believe that they might have been government-funded or uh, done as a request, let's say, to a friend. Orson Wells was a major FDR supporter. Uh, he was working on the fourth-term re-election bid, the whole nine yards. He was doing everything he could. And uh, here he does this War of the Worlds thing in 1938. Well, what's the world like at that time? FDR is considering getting involved in World War II against uh, United States. I mean, the, the rest of the United States was not behind that. They were not interested in getting involved in someone else's war. He's looking at a way to get everyone out of the Depression and sort of testing the waters and seeing, well, how would everyone feel about, you know, if we had to get involved in a war? So he might have been testing their mood by creating a scare story and using Mars, or it's possible that the government knew something all the way back then and wanted to test some other waters. Either way, taking the War of the Worlds and adapting it in the fashion that Wells did would do exactly that if he did it the way he did it and not any other way. Now, CBS, the entire stretch that he was doing this, did everything they could to make it obviously fictional. They were using fictional place names. And behind their back... Uh, the studio said, look, you've got to do it like this because it sounds too real the way you have it. And Wells said, oh, yeah, don't worry, we'll do that. And then he would change it without their paying attention. In fact, he had spent time actually at Grover's Mills in New Jersey in order to get physical locations down as best he possibly could. He'd stayed there in a boarding house one summer. So he was doing everything he could to circumvent what CBS wanted him to do and make it as realistic as he possibly could. And if you listen to it today... There's nothing remotely convincing about it. But back then, they were in a little bit simpler society. And the mere fact that it was coming over the radio automatically lent it some kind of credence, unless it was plainly being designated as some sort of fiction. Yeah. Now, at the beginning, it was announced, uh, yes, this is a play of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. However, if Wells was shrewd, and Wells was nothing if he was not shrewd, then he would have known that nobody was going to be listening to his show at that time. He didn't pull in that much of a share. They were all going to be listening to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. They might tune over during the commercial to see what was going on over at CBS Playhouse, and that's what a lot of them did. 
Yeah. So they come into the middle of it and they're hearing, I, I can't, I don't know what this is. There's some strange thing coming up. Ah, ah, <laughs> screaming. And, you know, the reports start coming in and the next thing you know, you've got a, a small scale panic on your hands. And, and that's pretty much how that went. And of course, Wells the next day, I got a picture of him in my book. It's one of my favorite pictures of Orson Wells ever. Where he's standing, he's, he's got the underlighting on him, and he's standing on a stage with his eyes kind of cast up, and this innocent expression on his face, and his hands open wide like, me? What did I do? Yeah. And it's a very plainly staged photo. It's very self-serving. But yeah, he knew exactly what he was doing. I guess if we look at the latter explanation or possibility for why it was done, as you say, maybe, you know, to test the waters for potential you know, the alien influence or whatever, or the uh, UFO menace, as you, that's a great term I like. We're going <laughs> to yeah, we'll get some mileage out of that. Keep using that one. Um, if it was to test the waters of the UFO menace, then it may have had some influence on the Robertson panel down the line because they could have oh, looked at it and said, you know, look what happened when we ran the test or something. Absolutely. Uh, let me lay a quick bit of background on this. Uh, this would not be just out of the blue. Why would we suppose that there could be someone on Mars? Well, there's a very simple reason for that, because we had some very high scientists who believed that they were receiving intelligent signals from Mars. And this was going on all the way back at the beginning of the century. Nikola Tesla in Colorado Springs uh, delayed telling anyone for many months after he, he was convinced that he was receiving intelligent signals from Mars by radio. He didn't want to tell anyone because he thought they're going to laugh at me like I'm some kind of crank. Well, he eventually did mention it in the Colorado Springs Gazette, and they treated him like he was a crank. The next thing you know, Lord Kelvin came over from Britain, publicly said, I think he's right, and you never heard another word about it. So that was in 1901. Well, then you go to the 1920s. The 1920s twice, I believe it was 1924 and 1926, I'd have to check to be specific. But it happened twice. Uh, there was a day that Mars was going to be very, very close to Earth, uh, the closest it had been in, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah. And there was an observed day of national radio silence. And we set up uh, a scientist named C. Francis Jenkins had come up with something he called the radio telescope. And he and the United States Navy got together and aimed this thing at Mars. And they received what they considered to be intelligent signals. These were studied by one of the heads of the CIA. I can't remember his name now. Uh, but anyway, we found the documents, or at least a couple of the documents, in his desk, even though his desk had been purged after his death at the National Security Agency. But there was a Captain John P. Ferreter of the U.S. Navy Signal Corps who wrote very specifically that they received voice transmissions. They received radio transmissions and voice transmissions of words from one to three or one to five syllables. I can't remember now. Uh, and they weren't able to decipher them. That's what, that was William Friedman. That's who it was. Uh, William Friedman was working on these at the, the National Security Agency even when he died. Two years after that, it was one or two years after they did this particular experiment, they did the exact same thing with a brand new, extremely expensive, one of those giant radio antennas that now are not so uncommon, but back then it was brand new. Well, they made one of those, I think it was in Nebraska, and they repeated the listening experiment, uh, again, with some high government officials there and with the Navy involved. No word was ever published on that one, but it was published that they did do the experiment. Just amazing, and I, and I think... All that I learn here from the book, it just makes you really understand uh, how we got where we are, uh, the UFO field, I mean. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, you know, why are we so marginalized? Why does everyone make fun of us? Why, why does everyone, you know, shit all over UFOs and, and the idea of life on Mars and everything? But then, you know, after reading the book, it's like 
there was this whole roadmap of completely undermining the whole subject and, and the whole idea of UFOs and life on Mars, and, and it's just amazing to think about. Oh, absolutely. And of course they would do something like that. <laughs> they can't admit it. What are they supposed to do? It's very easy for us from, from where we're standing right now. It's easy for us in retrospect to look back and say, why did you do this? You guys were such idiots. But if you put yourself in their shoes at that time, they had just finished with a world war. There were still some tensions around. We had come up with the atomic bomb, which, by the way, the president knew came from ancient technology. Uh, there were writings of, of President Truman's that didn't come out until after his death, where he said that we were, quote-unquote, resurrecting an ancient technology, a very destructive ancient technology. Well, yeah, we did. I came all the way back from Mohenjo-Daro, from ancient India, Indra's dart, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, they knew. Uh, and what were they going to do in this post-world where now we have the bomb and the Russians distrust us more than ever because we have actually used this weapon <laughs> yeah. on another civilization? And it's really, really terrifying. So the Russians know we have it and we're not sharing it with them. So, of course, tensions have already gone high. Now, in the middle of this, flying over our only base in the entire world that has two nuclear weapons at it. And who would know that? Suddenly a flying saucer crashes right there at Roswell, the only base in the world with an actual atomic warhead. Of course, everyone is going to be terrified out of their minds. First off, how did anyone know? Second off, who the hell has got this kind of technology that could reach us? Third off, their technology is so great, they don't even have to come in person. This thing is a remote-controlled dummy. And they're able to fly this thing here, plainly not even from this planet. Okay, I'm scared. If I were them, I would be scared out of my damn mind. And I would do exactly what they did. I'd want to put a lid on it as fast as possible, study it in secret to the fullest extent, and exploit whatever technology came into my hands. And of course they were going to keep it secret. That only makes sense. It's easy for us in retrospect to look at it and say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Again, playing the parlor game, uh, I think they probably should have publicized it around 1960. Now, the first director of the CIA, Rear Admiral Hillencoder, uh, he was of that opinion when he retired from the CIA. Uh, he said, you know what, I think we should take everything that we know about UFOs and discuss it openly in Congress and share it with the American people. Now, I can't even say whether it was a right call or a wrong call to disregard that. But that was his recommendation, and he was the head of the CIA. Interesting. That would be about 20 years into the re-education or, or process or at some point like that. So. Well, yeah, it would have been 13 from uh, the Roswell crash. And if you went back from when we had some idea that someone else was out there, and again, I think probably from Mars, because it seems like we got intelligence signals from there. Uh, that was all the way back in 1901. So depending on who was sitting on that information or how much they were paying attention to it or how much uh, time had been devoted to it, yeah, they'd known for quite some time. And certainly from the time of Roswell on, there couldn't have been any doubt. Yeah. And then this is such a huge topic to really, like, dig into, but I'm going to do my best, folks, because <laughs> you're looking at, you know, 50-plus years of cinematic history amazingly detailed in the book throughout all those years. So it's like there's so much stuff that, like you said, over 500 movies. We're not going to talk about them all, folks. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about that. But let's sort of look at some of these early trends and some of these early sort of steps, if you will, that were being taken in the 1950s with this massive amount of you know, space alien movies and UFO sort of related movies and, and tangentially, you know, robot stuff and all that sort of thing. One of the first ones I wanted to talk to you about, the point you make is about the film Abbott and Costello go to Mars, and you say <laughs> that the promotional techniques were designed to make UFOs seem like a fad. 
which, uh, you know, would be in, in keeping, I guess, with what the government would want at the time, which would be, you know, for people to sort of briefly think about UFOs, but then move on to other things and, and consider them just sort of the, the flavor of the moment. Oh, yeah, that was quite deliberate. That's another one of those where plainly there was kind of a uh, decision somewhere in the studio chain to change things. Originally, it was supposed to be Evan Costello go to Venus, but for some reason they changed it to Mars. Who knows? Because they actually do go to Venus, but they changed the title to Mars. <laughs> so why? I don't know. Maybe someone had some reason. And uh, there were promotionals that were done by the studio. They had, uh, like, high school kids or elementary school kids. I can't remember what it was now. But, you know, why do you think it's important for us to go to space? You know, tell us what you think about space. And uh, they gave some sort of a silly giveaway for that, and they made a big thing out of it. And the movie is just awful, actually. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. And if, I love that Costello, first off. But uh, of all other movies, that's one of the most negligible. And then you also mentioned the ubiquitous mention of UFOs in an overtly ridiculous manner uh, throughout all these 1950s films. And you can kind of see that trend carry on. You Continuing know, through to today, yes. Exactly. And, and sort of just to crystallize that for folks, it's just sort of like, you know, these one-off lines you hear in movies where someone will just denigrate UFOs, where they'll be like, yeah, oh yeah, and and there's aliens on the moon or, you know, or, yeah, and, and UFOs are real and sort of just these weird yep. little throwaway lines. The same way that you use Elvis today. Oh, and I suppose Elvis talks to you. Yeah. That sort of started, I guess you could say, in, in the 50s cinema? 1953. And it only started in 1950s cinema. I can give you an exact time. It happened in 1953, right when the Robertson panel made its recommendation. Immediately after the Robertson panel made its recommendation, within a month, Herman Cohen, who worked for American International Pictures, which at the time was American Releasing Corporation, had just come out of the Marines. He had a four-year stint in the Marines, and he comes up with a movie to make, super low budget, called Target Earth. In this movie, uh, there are a bunch of people, well, a bunch, there are a handful of people who wake up in some metropolitan city that is completely abandoned, and they don't know why. It's like, what happened here? Did someone drop the bomb and not tell us? There's no one in the city. Except something clanking around that fires, you know, death rays out of this single cyclopean eye. It's, it's a big robot. It's a big tin can robot. And it's a pretty scary tin can robot, considering that it looks ridiculous, but it can vaporize you by just pointing its little visor in your direction. Yeah. Well, this movie was made on a shoestring, so much of a shoestring that, you know, they only had the one robot. Cause they couldn't make any more than that. And the thing was made out of cardboard boxes, literally. And they made a pretty good movie, actually. It still holds up reasonably well today, considering how incredibly cheap it is. But that was immediately after the Robertson panel recommendation. And a flood of movies started popping up. Uh, and they started trying to top each other in how low budget they could be or how laughable they could be. This was especially true through about 1953 to 1964. And 1953 to 1964 were the exact years of the CIA's MKUltra project, which was their mind control project. What's this got to do with flying saucers? Oh, did you see one too? No, I did. That figures. It was about 11 o'clock at night and I was getting ready for bed when this saucer buzzed the barn. Really? And what did you do? I pulled down my shade. I'm shy. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Oh, hi, Mr. Douglas. Would you mind telling me who you're talking to? Oh, just the people in the flying saucer. Did you see it? Sure. Oh, yeah. It was round and silver and had two little green men in it. That's the one. <laughs> You're walking in your sleep. Now go to bed. But Mr. Good D night. Don't wake us up again. 
What's the matter with Al? Oh, he was seeing a couple of friends of his off to Mars or some such place. Now, do you think that, like, the people making these movies knew how terrible they were? They just didn't... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a term for this. In England, they call it course theater. Course, C-O-A-R-S-E. And they actually have contests to see who can do it best. Now, these are actually fun. I was an actor for many years, and anyone who's ever been in theater, you do this for fun. You can be doing serious shows or what have you, but every now and then you just got to cut loose and, and be ridiculous. And often you do it in rehearsals. What you're trying to do is look like you're doing something serious. In other words, you are impersonating a bad actor. You're a good actor. You know how to act very well. But you also know how to impersonate bad actors. You don't just do something badly. You have to do it the way a bad actor would do it. In other words, you have to look like you meant to do it well. That's fun. Well, the people who were making these movies were doing the exact same thing. They were saying, how can I make it look like I intended this to be good and just totally mess it up? And you have to know behind the scenes, they're giving each other props for outdoing, uh, you know, doing a better job than the next guy. When Plan 9 from Outer Space came out, this is an Ed Wood movie. Ed Wood was admittedly a pretty bad filmmaker, but he wrote his own stuff. And what you'll notice is before Plan 9, he's writing coherent sentences in his other movies. They may not be good movies, but there's nothing wrong with his sentence structure. It's intelligible. He knows how to write. Then you get to Plan 9. All of a sudden, you have these absurd things flopping out of people's mouths that make absolutely no sense at all. Uh, I would have to actually look <laughs> I have it all written down in my book. I went into this one in detail. But I would have to read it as opposed to trying to memorize it because it's so badly jumbled, the way that the thoughts are falling out of the actor's mouths, that you can't memorize it. It's just absurd. <laughs> now, plainly, he was doing this on purpose. Your point in the book is that it's not just bad luck that UFOs ended up being the, you know, the medium by which you know, all these sort of bad movies ended up becoming the focus. It was actually you know, seeded in a way originally. It was absolutely deliberate. They were going to be the center of attention. And where they were not, in, in every other low-budget, terrible, horrible movie, uh, for instance, one of my favorite ones to call attention to is The Giant Claw. It was made in 1957. A crap load of these were made in 1957. It was a major year. It was also a major UFO sighting year, uh, which are entirely predictable, by the way. Whenever Mars is closest to Earth, the UFO sighting is going to shoot off the graph. And the military knew that all the way back in 1948. And that's been verified by several people since who then don't publish anymore. They just shut up about it. Yeah. But the military knows. And 1957 was going to be a major sighting year, and it was. And one of the horrible movies that came out that year was The Giant Claw. This thing is so classically bad. I must recommend it does exist on DVD. A lot of these things do exist on DVD. I've been hunting a lot of them up. I highly recommend, if you want to see just a bad movie, get The Giant Claw. This is about a giant bird from another dimension flying around in our skies like a giant battleship. And they use the phrase, like a giant battleship, about 50 times in the movie, plainly trying to make it more and more ridiculous every time it comes up. Yeah. Well, the bird, of course, is, is a ridiculous-looking marionette that would not... Scooby-Doo would not run away from this. It's just not frightening in the slightest. It's utterly ludicrous. But everyone's treating it like it's real. And the entire reason that it has come to Earth is to lay an egg. We have to defeat it, of course. Naturally, we do. Yeah, I remember the uh, I remember the dissertation just dissection of the, the giant claw in the book. It is one of the more amusing ones in there. Oh, yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> I'm going to have to uh, look that one up for sure. And you do make a good point in the book that... Like you said, uh, for instance, 57 was a huge year for these types of movies. The the powers that be, if you will, uh, who are orchestrating the disinformation and misinformation uh, regarding the UFO menace, they could have uh, you know, only sort of 
influenced a handful of films, and then with the way Hollywood is, which we still see nowadays, is that once you know, one thing sort of hits, everybody's doing it, and you know it explodes, and you don't need to prompt these people to do bad UFO movies because you know. As they say in Hollywood, imitation is the sincerest form of television. <laughs> yep, it takes off on its own impetus. Now, you only have to do a few of them, and the next thing you know, everyone else is going to follow suit. You've already established the template. Now everyone else is going to be doing the same thing. Yeah. You don't even have to do anything. It's going to take off on its own. Uh, there's something that we should delineate here real fast just so people don't get lost. The difference between misinformation and disinformation. Mm -hmm. Disinformation is where you have a highly credible source, like a general who's been in the Air Force his entire life, telling you information that is just not credible. Uh, I mean, he's doing it with a completely straight face, and you're sitting there listening and saying, uh, and the aliens like strawberry ice cream, I see. And uh, let me see, they have underground bases, and uh, what are they doing? Oh, I see. They, uh, they're, they're not homosexual, but they like men. And, uh, <laughs> and they just keep telling you these ludicrous things, and they get more and more ridiculous. And, of course, eventually this guy is exposed as a liar. That is disinformation. It's something that is intended to hook you and then sour the subject matter for you by being exposed as a hoax or a lie. Misinformation, on the other hand, is where you take a ludicrous source and put completely accurate information in it, which is exactly what we're talking about here. If I take a, a ridiculous flying saucer movie or some other kind of movie and put accurate information in it, no one's going to believe it because it's coming from Gilligan's Island. Yeah, like the rhetorical question here is when they're doing something like that, why would they even put the accurate information in if they're just trying to, you know, sort of get people off the idea of UFOs and turn them off of it? Why, why put accurate information in? Because then, if they start to sniff out the truth, if someone is actually doing some good investigation and they start hitting on it, they're going to come to the point and say, robots from outer space? I saw this on a movie the other night. This is absurd. I can't believe I could, I'm doing this. And they pitch it. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I see where you're going now, then. It sullies the whole thing anyway. Yeah, and it's, since it's a two-pronged attack, it keeps you off balance. I see exactly what you mean now. I guess the other rhetorical question I had here is... Uh, it did seem like some of these movies from the 50s ended up becoming, like, classics and remade and stuff like that. Absolutely. You know, if they were so bad and everything, how come they ended up being remade over and over again? Because they've become their own fond form of an institution. When they were putting these things out, they were mostly hitting the drive-ins. Now, there's a whole generation of people who don't even know what a drive-in is anymore unless they saw one depicted in a movie. But back when I was growing up, through high school and into college, the drive-in was the place you went. We didn't have VHSs, we didn't have DVDs, uh, and TV went off the air at a certain time each night. And you didn't have cable, so you didn't have any channels either. You had maybe four. So where's your big source of entertainment? The drive-ins. They called them the passion pits, because no one went there to really watch the movie. You went there to make out, or just have a good time. Uh, no one's really paying that serious an attention to it. It's sort of background noise. Yeah. So in the middle of the heavy breathing, you're picking up robots from outer space and giant flying battleship birds from another dimension here to lay an egg. And the result of this, of course, is that it starts getting to, you're laughing at it, you're having a good time, you go tell your friends, and it all starts spreading around. It's very infectious. Yeah, and that's that's a big point that you make in in the book, that this aura developed around UFOs as a result of uh, all these bad movies and, you know, how they're tied in with bad plots, bad acting, outrageous costumes, and, uh, you know, just stilted and terrible acting. 
And you um, can't have more fun. <laughs> the whole point. We still, my friends and I still do this. We have, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too, and maybe you do. We have bad movie nights. That's where, you know, you rent some movies. You say, what's your favorite bad movie? Or, or I just saw the most awful movie. This thing is ridiculous. And you just can't wait to share it with somebody. So you rent the thing and you have parties around it and you do exactly what we used to do with a drive-in. Uh, you get together and you have some drinks and some popcorn or what have you and you just kind of get shit-faced and laugh your ass off at something really awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you have 500 channels of cable, it's usually pretty... <laughs> yeah, it's, it's real easy anymore. <laughs> it's easy pickings. I mean, now we've got direct... To, it used to be direct-to-video. Now we've got direct-to-DVD. You know, direct-to-cable, direct-to-DVD. Uh, you know that this is going to be super low-quality. And oh, that's yeah. why you're watching it. <laughs> I want to see something super low-quality. Thank you. Because you had so much fun watching those that they became their own kind of institution. And so... You have things like Invaders from Mars and The Fly and what have you, and they get remade because one generation remembers that and said, you know, uh, I watched that again the other night, and the effects are kind of chintzy, and the movie was actually not bad except for the effects. Maybe we could do that better. And, you know, they, they bring it back up. They resurrect it. As we're talking about this sort of like aura that develops, is there any sort of like discernible time when it seemed to be apparent that this re-education program and, and misinformation – plan was starting to, you know, take hold, I guess you'd say. We know it took effect, and it was, you know, ongoing since the Robertson panel, but is there any idea, really, of sort of like, you know, when it started to click? Because I know, just as a frame of reference, uh, you mentioned how the DC UFO sightings, and then how the general came out and poo-pooed them, and then you quoted someone, I think, from Blue Book or NICAP or something like that that yeah. said, uh, you know, the, the UFO reports dropped from, let's say, 100 to 10 or something. I mean, yep. Obviously, I, I don't get the numbers right. but um, You got exactly the right idea, though, and I'm glad you brought that one up. That was uh, 1952. Okay. 1952, the Washington Nationals is what they were called. And that was for the Washington National Airport. They were the ones that reported it. We had a number of UFOs that were flying directly over the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Zoom. There they are. Uh, and very pointedly... No interceptors are being sent up after them. Well, I mean, the boards are lit up. Everyone's calling everybody and saying, uh, not only do I not know what these are, but they're pulling all kinds of maneuvers, and they're over the White House. Now, the standard uh, military operating procedure at that time, and probably still is, is you shoot down unidentifieds. Yeah. Shoot first and ask questions later. No interceptors. Nothing going up. Well, they just kind of move around for quite a few hours over Washington until finally some limping a single interceptor is sent out from a base in another state to kind of half-heartedly go up to it and act like it's going to do something. At which point, phew, they all go away. Well, of course, it hits the newspapers. All over the world, it hits the newspapers. And this is the most important place in the world at the time. And bam, big news. Well, the last thing in the world that anybody wanted was a repeat performance. And one week later, that's exactly what they got. Boop, they were right back again. Exact same thing. And this time, it was extremely serious because after the first week, Everyone's eyes were open. They hear it again, and, and all eyes in the world are fixed right on this taking place. So interceptors were dispatched. They had to be. Washington really didn't have any choice. The interceptors come up against the UFOs. The UFOs boop, disappear. You just can't see them anymore. Okay, well, let's go home. They turn around to go back to base. They get partway there. Boop, they come back on again, just like turning the lights off, turning the lights on. So back they go to chase them. Boop, they turn off again. Well, this goes on for a little while. They're obviously messing around with the jets. Uh, and at one point, the jets, not knowing what to do, one of them found himself surrounded by a number of disks, and they were disks. 
I do not remember how many there were. Uh, there's a an MGM, or no, it was United Artists, excuse me, I think, uh, a UFO movie that was made in 1952. It was the first real UFO documentary, and it's still, it's pretty tame, but it does put out quite a bit of stuff, uh, which for that year was amazing. Or it wasn't 1952, it had to, 1956, I think, because uh, the Nationals were 52. Uh, anyway, um, they actually have the transcript, or they repeat the transcript, of the pilot and his craft surrounded by these discs, and there's shakiness in his voice. He's radioing back to base and saying, uh... Well, they're around me. Do I engage? And there was sort of a tense silence, and you know the guys on the other end of the line are debating that answer themselves very seriously, because if they tell him to engage, this guy's going to die. Yeah. And if they don't, then they've got egg on their face. Well, apparently the UFO was listening because it waited just long enough, and it understood the brinksmanship game, and then they all pulled away. And the guy was able to just kind of sweat at home and then clean the yellow stuff out of his jumpsuit. <laughs> So that was done. But, obviously, after that kind of show, boom, front page news in papers all around the world. Everyone was reading about this. This kind of publicity on a subject that the government didn't want anyone to even know about in the first place, last thing in the world that the government wanted. I mean, phones are ringing off the hook talking about UFO sightings. So, right after the second appearance of the UFOs, the second Washington Nationals incident, Major General John Samford was called forth for a press conference. This guy gets up in front of the entire world uh, with a bunch of other guys in uniform looking all very serious and says, well, we've done an investigation and we've determined that these are clouds, ducks, bellies, the planet Venus, and the planet Jupiter. And pretty much they said all four of those things during the course of the interview as though they were interchangeable. And everyone's kind of went, oh, yeah, what do you know? And all of a sudden, no one's calling in about UFOs anymore. They drop like 90%, the number of reports. Phew, straight down. Which you have to know is exactly the result that the government wanted when they did that. Uh, they know they can't stop people from seeing them. What they want is to keep people quiet about it. They don't want people disturbed. They don't want them upset. That's largely what governments do in general. It's kind of like when you're watching the economy go down the tubes. Uh, we got the new guy, I can't remember his name now, the new uh, economy secretary. Uh, remember the first time when he came out in front of the, uh, the cameras? And he looked just like George W. Bush Jr. when he first came out, you know, with his <laughs> eyes big as saucers, looking like he's a deer in the headlights about to get run over. And he comes out, and uh, everyone at the press conference is saying, oh, I hear the economy is going down the tubes. We're looking at another depression. And he's standing up there stiff as can be going, everything's fine. Don't worry. Um, keep your money where it's at. Everything's going to be good. Bye. <laughs> Very uncomfortable and incredibly obvious. Well, you know, five minutes before he went out in front of the cameras, I really feel sorry for this guy. Five minutes before he went up in front of the cameras, he met in some little back room, uh, probably even with the president and several advisors, and they're all chatting, and they say, okay, look, uh, here are the figures. They look really bad, don't they? <laughs> Do not tell everyone how bad this looks. Lie. Go out there and lie. Just keep them comfortable. Lie. And probably less than five minutes after that, they shoved him up in front of the lights, and there he is, looking like he looked and sounding like he sounded, and repeating the obligatory lie in order to quell everyone's discontent, because that is his actual job, at least as far as the public is concerned. Now, behind the scenes, I have absolutely no doubt 
that he and everyone on his team and the president and lots of people in Congress are doing everything they can to take care of this particular problem. And they would have done the same thing with UFOs back in the day, and I'm sure they still do now to some extent. Uh, plainly, they want to deal with it, but they don't want anyone to know about it because they don't want people upset. Upset people do not go out and buy things. Upset people are upset. They want them to go about their jobs and uh, just live their lives, you know. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons that they go about things the way they go about things. That's why Major General John Sanford's conference, which everyone attending knew was bullshit, but they went along with it anyway because that's the job. Yeah. Now, do you think that was also kind of like the the way things were in the 50s where people just took the government's word for it, so they were just like, oh, okay, then it's ducks? Much easier back then, yes. Back in the 1950s, you have to understand, uh, Eisenhower was president. I like Ike. Everybody liked Eisenhower. That was part of the problem. He was a horribly ineffective president, and he himself knew it by the time he was done with eight years. He got those eight years because everybody liked him. He was the big war hero. He was the big general in World War II. So everyone just thought he was great, and there was this big period of peace and prosperity uh, and uh, the Cold War, which geared up right about the same time. And it wasn't until the end of his tenure that he recognized the military-industrial complex, as he put it, and actually warned everyone about it. But through that time, even he was oblivious to everything that was going on. I don't think he was a complete boob. I just don't think he knew everything that was going on underneath him. And, and I don't think most presidents since have either, and maybe a lot of them before. They find out what's going on as they go along. I mean, they're given reports, they're given briefings. But how serious is the briefing that a president is given on Vietnam, for instance, when he comes in? Um, that depends on who is being talked to. When a senator goes over to Iraq today and says, well, uh, I hear we've got torture going on and all this other kind of stuff. Oh, no, here, let me show you around. And they're going to take this guy to all the prearranged things that they have staged and all the safe spots and say, see, everything's fine. Everything's under control unless they need more money or unless they need to keep things going more. Then they're going to take him to a hot spot and say, oh, my God, look at this. It's horrible. But they're going to spin it any way they want to spin it. And how is this guy going to know? He's being taken on a show. And that show has a pre-designed end. And they will probably get that pre-designed end. Well, the same thing was happening with UFOs. The same thing was happening with the Cold War. That's just how the game is played. That's what they're about. It's interesting to sort of contrast that press conference with the other famous UFO press conference. Uh, with I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping you know what I'm talking about with the governor of Arizona. And he brought out the guy dressed as the alien. And sort of everybody laughed. <laughs> I don't doubt that. In fact, I probably saw it at the time. Was this when they had the, uh, I think it was 97? Yeah, the Phoenix Lights and everything. Oh, yeah, 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 the Phoenix Lights. That's exactly what happened with the Phoenix Lights thing. Uh, the Phoenix Lights, for anyone who doesn't remember, because this was swept under the rug as much as it possibly could be, this was pretty much like the Washington Nationals. It was major, major news. Uh, the news did not cover it much. But it, for a few days, or even a few weeks, there was a lot about it, and this was in the mainline news. This was on the nightly news. If you tuned in ABC or CBS or NBC, they would talk about it at some point during the course of their show. Thousands of people had seen this enormous UFO over Arizona, and they all called it in. They all reported it. There were pictures of it, and this stuff is getting on the news. And uh, sure enough, what happens down the line? Well, the governor comes out and trots out a guy dressed up as an alien. See, isn't that funny? <laughs> well, it's all done. Yeah, the weird, the weird part is, like, you wonder if it's that the 52 press conference was handled by, you know, the feds and, and the people who really knew what they were doing, and the guy in Arizona is just sort of like a 
an out-of-the-loop fucking clown, so he handled it in a completely different way? Or has the perception of UFOs changed so much in the last, whatever, 45 years between the two events that in 52 you'd handle it this way? You'd go out, you'd be serious, you wouldn't, you know, ridicule the people, and you'd just give them some bullshit answer and they'd go away. But in, you know, in, in 97, the better way to handle it is to go out and shit all over the people and laugh at them, and then that'll shut them up. Like, they don't believe the government anyway, so let's just make fun of them. Well, in some ways it has changed massively, and in other ways it hasn't changed at all. The way it hasn't changed at all is trotting the guy out dressed as an alien for, you know, the concluding act and saying, well, that's that, woo-hoo-hoo, and it's all done. However, uh, addressing it seriously, they do address it seriously to some regard. Uh, when this was going on for several nights, if not weeks, that the Phoenix lights were coming up and being discussed, and they were in newspapers, too. You really couldn't miss the Phoenix lights. It would be mentioned at some, some place or another. You'd come across it. Uh, I mean, a general came out. I think it was a general uh, from the Air Force who openly said, we don't know what this is. <laughs> if anyone <laughs> knows what this is, please tell us. But we don't know what it is. That's a pretty serious credential standing up in front of the world and, and making a major admission. Uh, and that's when you would have the governor coming out with a guy dressed as an alien, because we got to deflect this. Yeah. Uh, the government really doesn't want people paying attention to UFOs at all. They don't want them believing that they exist. They don't want them paying attention to them. They want the subject to be completely off everyone's radar screen. If they are thinking about it, then they want everyone scared to death about it, because that way they can trump up some money and they can get some support, because, oh, the government will protect us. But they really don't want anyone paying serious attention to the subject. They just don't. Yeah. And that's the type of thing that causes serious attention to be paid to the subject. So, of course, they're going to deflect it however they can, as soon as they can. And for the same reason they did it in 1952. Difference is, in 1952, everyone believed what the government told them. It didn't matter. If the government told them that uh, something was good, something else was bad, well, that's the way it was. Very few people questioned that. They went right along with it because everyone was prosperous. Everybody was happy. Everyone had their house in the suburb. Everyone had their nice job. Uh, everyone had, you know, their, their two-car garage and their 2.2 kids or what have you, and they had a job with a pension, and everything was taken care of. We have not seen that since. And you will notice that, you know, trust in the government has been dropping substantially, especially after Nixon and Watergate. Oh, that was a major one. It's been going downhill since. Yeah. Using that as the example and, and what we talked about, about how the reports dropped off, is there any discernible you know, period of time when it seemed like, okay, this plan of ours is, is starting to take effect and people are no longer thinking of UFOs as seriously anymore? It was immediate. Uh, notice something in the administration that this takes place. Like I said, 1953 to 1964. What happened was... Uh, 1953, January of 1953, we have the Robertson panel, and immediately we have these, these flying saucer movies coming out with the desired effect. Right before that, we had three serious flying saucer movies that came out. Yeah. We had The Thing, we had, uh, oh, we had four, excuse me. We had The Thing, we had Day the Earth Stood Still, we had War of the Worlds, which came out into the next administration, but it had been made the year before. Mm -hmm. It was made in 52, came out in 53. And Invaders from Mars, which came out uh, right about the same time, I think. It was in 53. That was the last of the serious ones for a while. Right after that, in comes uh, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower. Everybody likes Ike. Uh, he's an arch-conservative. He's way to the right. And immediately, 
the CIA is working on MKUltra. We have the ridiculous flying saucer movies put out, and immediately they are having the desired effect. And that carries through all the way to 1964, all the way through the time that Kennedy was in office. And so during that whole period, that there weren't any, I guess, thoughtful, well-made UFO movies? Yes, there were, but they were fewer and farther between. Now, interestingly, like I said, it was a Republican administration. It was Ike, where the ludicrous ones came out. These are the ones that are you know, fully cooperating with the defense industry and saying, we will give you whatever you want. Uh, he changed his tune by the time he left office and warned us about the military-industrial complex and all of that. Yeah. But he didn't know at the time. He's just, you know, waving the flag. He thought, these are good guys, they're doing good work. But he wasn't really paying attention to what was going on until he left. Uh, in comes Kennedy, and there's a bit of schizophrenia that happens. They're not all entirely ludicrous now. We're actually getting a few serious ones. And one in particular was The Outer Limits, which came on TV in 1963. The guy that helmed that show was Leslie Stevens. Leslie Stevens has as CIA a background as I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, his father was an admiral, I believe. Uh, he came up with airplane arresting gear for aircraft carriers. He handled Russian defectors at the time. This tells you how high up the guy was. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is his son. And his son is also in the military. He was in Greenland or Iceland, I think, in World War II. Uh, when he was done, he worked for Time magazine, and he worked in a mental hospital as an orderly for a while. He has kind of CIA jobs attached wherever he goes. Uh, everyone called him a mover and a shaker when he was hitting the world, and they called him a young Orson Welles. Everyone compared him to Orson Welles. Huh. Uh, he had political ambitions, and he was a definite mover and shaker, and very, very personable. Yeah. Well, he is the guy that came up with The Outer Limits. Uh, the Outer Limits is probably the most intelligent uh, UFO-oriented show that was ever on TV. There has not one, been one better since. And practically everything in it came straight out of CIA files. Practically all of it. Almost every episode. There were 49 episodes, 48 stories. One of them was a two-parter. Practically every episode not only had to do with alien contact, but it had to do with alien abduction. No one was talking about alien abduction back then. Uh, yeah, I had talked to Ann Druffel earlier in the year, and she talked about how the abduction thing didn't really explode until like the early 70s. So That's right. We had one report, actually two, once the Hills came out, but the Hills were a belated report. Uh, in fact, someone tried to draw attention to the outer limits and said, oh, you saw this on the outer limits, and that's coloring your report, which could not have been the case. But in any event... Uh, we only had one report before the Hills. The Hills were in 62, uh, I think it was, 61, 62. I'd have to actually look that one up. It was very early in the 1960s. Yeah. And they, they didn't go into therapy about that or go through sessions on it until about 63, uh, 64, I think it was. And then it wasn't written about until sometime after that. Uh, but before that, there was only one UFO abduction case in the modern era that had been reported. And that was Antonio Villas Boas in 1957 in uh, South America. His was an entirely benign abduction, and it matches a hell of a lot of abductions that we've heard since, and down to details, I mean extreme details. Yeah. The only difference being that he did not forget. They didn't wipe his memory. They didn't do anything to him to make him forget. So we get the entire story uh, word for word start to finish. He could relate the entire thing. And that's what makes it interesting when you compare it to the other ones that are being brought out, say, by hypnotic regression or simply being remembered through dreams or what have you, or just gradually coming back and surfacing to memory. They match. There might be uh, just a couple of little things off here and there, but you can tell that it's very plainly the same thing and that they're seeing the same thing and experiencing the same thing. Well, in his case, he was picked up, and he thought they might have been robots. He didn't know. He was picked up by the little gray guys. They scared the crap out of him. Yeah, but they didn't hurt him. And once he realized he wasn't going to be hurt, he settled down and relaxed, and he was fine. 
Uh, it started, I think, uh, maybe a week before or a few nights before. He and his brother had been farming out in the field uh, at night because it beat the heat. And UFO appears over at the side of the field. Well, they kind of go chasing after the UFO, and beep, it zips over to the other side of the field. Run back the other way. Beep, back to the other side of the field. This went on for quite some time, a little cat and mouse game. And then it goes away. No harm done. It's just there. And when you stop and analyze it, it it's almost like a, it's a friendly game of tag, almost. Yeah. Plainly nothing malevolent. Someone's, eh, they're toying with it. Eh, I'm just fucking with you. And away they go. Well, shortly after that, I don't know, a couple nights later or whatever, uh, they're in their room and this bright light fills the thing and they open it up and there's this thing at the window and they shut it and they hide and, you know, finally go back to sleep and it goes away. Well, and then another night he goes out and he's farming in the field and now all of a sudden the thing comes down and it lands and it opens up and it looks like straight out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. It's Bugs Bunny and Marvin the Martian. You got this flying saucer that comes down, three little landing pads come out from the bottom, boop, it lands, down comes a drawbridge, out come three little guys, his trailer dies, he can't move it any further. Uh, they catch up to him, they pick him up, they carry him away. They're little bitty guys, but they're really strong. And they pick him up and they carry him on board, and uh, they kind of sat him down. They weren't able to talk. They talked in weird little buzzes and clicks and whistles, which to me, today, sounds kind of like we, what you might expect from a fax machine or a computer. Yeah, yeah. Some weird little thing like that. Like a dial-up internet. Yeah, exactly. But back then, no one would know what to call that. They're just weird twitters and, and clicks and chirps, I think is how they're most often described, which sounds like a fax machine. So... Uh, these things are plainly not hurting him. They take him on board, and there's really not much there. They undressed him. They kind of swabbed him over with some stuff. Uh, they took a little scratch off of his chin and got a little bit of blood, which didn't hurt. It left a little tiny scar. He recognized he wasn't going to get hurt, but he didn't know exactly what to make of any of this. And they sort of walked him around and pointed at a few things. Uh, they weren't explaining anything, but, you know, like, <laughs> have a look around. What do you think? Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> And then they sat him in a room, uh, an empty round room for a while that had one bare mattress in it. And some kind of gas came out about waist level from the walls, which made him nauseous, and he threw up. A short time after, but he felt fine after. After that, out of the blue, door opens up, and in comes this gorgeous girl. Uh, she's, I don't know, five, 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 six, somewhere in that neck of the woods, but she's stunning. Uh, she's stitched naked. Uh, she had blonde hair and red pubic hair, which was a... Uh, detail that was left out of his report at the time because he was embarrassed. He didn't even want to tell this story. The Brazilian Air Force got him to tell his story. He didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. He ended up going to see a doctor. Uh, I think it was a Lavo Fontes uh, because he was. Well, he ended up having radiation sickness. He had mild radiation sickness, but they couldn't tell what was wrong with him at the time, and he recovered okay. But he, he just had mild symptoms of it, like getting too much sun, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, he wasn't doing too well, and he recovered all right. But Alvaro Fontes heard about the UFO business, and the next thing you know, the Brazilian Air Force wanted to hear about it. So he's there for um, a UFO organization. I can't remember which one at the time. It was one of the bigger ones at the time, and, and definitely one of the more serious ones. And there's a, a couple of representatives of the Brazilian Air Force listening to his story, but he didn't want to talk about all of this in the first place. They kind of dragged it out of him. So anyway, back to the story. Here's this stunner who comes walking in with a smile on her face, and her entire attitude is, hey, sailor, uh, and <laughs> they do it. More details that came out later. Uh, they had sex. Afterwards, she jacked him off at one point to get some more uh, specimen. Uh, when they were all done, uh, he was taken out, uh, cleaned up, given his clothes back, and before he left, before he went out of the flying saucer, which is pretty much what it was, uh, 
Uh, she gave him a wink and a smile, put her hand on her belly, pointed skyward, and gave him the decided impression that, thanks for getting me pregnant, a lot of fun, have a good one. And he was a little bit worried that he was going to get taken away himself by that particular implication. But no, they took him back down, and uh, he watched the thing lift up again, just like out of a cartoon, and pew, shoot off into the southwest sky. There he is. He's fine. That was his entire experience. Say, well, uh, I just got picked up, had a roll in the hay, and I'm not sure exactly what went down, but it sure was weird. That's his whole UFO experience right there. And yeah. there are legion of UFO abductees who have pretty much the same story to report. Yeah, and that one came out like in the... Which 1957. Is... It actually came out... I'm trying to remember when that came out. It was not long after. It was probably 58. Because it, it, was, it was shortly after that that he started uh, exhibiting symptoms of radiation sickness. It, it wasn't published, I think, until about 1961. Yeah, but these themes of sexual elements and uh, abductions and stuff were part of the milieu of, of these uh, movies and stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Way before fact, it came out. Yeah, in fact, the exact same year, American International Pictures, who made legion of these movies, Roger Corman was involved in that, and he's also got a CIA background like nobody's business. But a movie came out called Invasion of the Saucer Men. Invasion of the Saucer Men, uh, you have a bunch of teenagers who, uh, you know, they're out in Lover's Lane or what have you, and these great, big, enormous-headed, giant-eyed little green men uh, come after them. They attack a cow, first off. This was before one cattle mutilation had ever been reported. But they attack a cow. They knock people out. Now, there's one guy that they knock out. He wakes up and he doesn't have any idea what happened to him. And the Air Force is secretly trying to get into the flying saucer that these things came down in. Uh, and, of course, no one believes their story when they try and tell them that, hey, these great big-headed guys were after us. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't hurt anybody. Now, this is the movie that – now, I'm not sure if it was a remake or a reissue, but didn't they take the attack on the cow out? Yeah. When that was remade by Larry Buchanan, Larry Buchanan made really, really extraordinarily bad movies. Uh, he remade a bunch of American International stuff in the 1960s, and that was about 66 or 67, an Attack of the Eye Creatures, which was a TV remake. Why would you remake this movie, let alone worse than the original? <laughs> but there's a TV remake of the exact same thing uh, by American International, tossed on a TV, and in fact, so bad that whoever was paying attention to the movie didn't notice that on the uh, title of it, it doesn't say Attack of the Eye Creatures, it says Attack of the, the Eye Creatures. The article, the, is listed twice. Well, plainly someone along the chain would have caught that and pulled it out. But no, they didn't. They left it in there. And they left the attack on the cow out. They also took out the uh, physical description of the aliens. They just put some kind of ridiculous mask on them, uh, along with, I think, visible zippers going up the side of some sort of a uh, black tunic or something like that. It might have just been a turtleneck. <laughs> I mean, you can see their sneakers at a couple spots. Yeah. Now, just to jump back a little bit in the chronology, we've kind of established here that the vast majority, if not all of the movies, you know, dealing with the alien subject and the UFO menace in the 50s were silly. But is there any sort of overarching trend as far as how the visitors, for lack of a better term, were portrayed? Were they always evil? Were they, you know, mostly evil, you know, or mostly benign? Or, you know, what, what sort of trends can we see as far as, you know, how the, the visitors vast were majority, they were either plainly malevolent uh, or comical. There are some intelligent presentations, but you can not with complete accuracy, but you can notice a difference between Republican administrations and Democratic administrations as to what take is going to be seen. For instance, during a Democratic administration, you are likelier to see a serious presentation of UFO material uh, or more thought-provoking 
And in a Republican administration, you are likelier to see a more laughable or ludicrous or evil portrayal of aliens. Interesting. Now That the, is, generally speaking, there are exceptions. Now, at the risk of uh, psychoanalyzing, why do you think that is? Because Republicans thrive on fear, and Democrats are generally more interested in education. They are generalizations, definitely, but uh, I believe that your audience will agree. Republicans usually are big military backers. They're very conservative. I mean, anyone who supported Bush would, would be saying, oh, my God, yeah, there probably are evil aliens out there. We better be doing something about them. <laughs> And just to sort of extrapolate, I guess, or, or elucidate more on that, do you think then it's a sort of like situation where, let's say, Ike leaves office, and then Kennedy comes in, and then you know key areas and parts of the government are, are changed over into the new administration, and then, then those dudes all of a sudden sort of like take the wheel, for lack of a better term, of the education program, and then they're like, no, we're going to go this way with it? It's schizophrenic. The president does not have ironclad control over this, and neither do the intelligence agencies. What you have to bear in mind is there is one faction that will always want to keep this secret, and that is mostly the defense industry. The defense industry does not want any of this getting out. This is where their bread and butter is. They're going to get all the money they want so long as there's a space threat coming in here. All the money they want. If you look at things intelligently, if you take the fear out of it, or if you say, you know what, it's inevitable that we're going to have contact, these guys are going to fight you on that. They don't want to hear that. Yeah. So you can't put the word down and say, you will play ball. Because they're going to say, who runs Thunderdome? Master Blaster runs Thunderdome. Who runs Thunderdome? <laughs> wow. I love that. <laughs> Just to sort of tie in the thing with Outer Limits to what we've been talking about here about the silly movies and stuff from the 50s, was there any differentiation between, you know, TV entertainment and film entertainment, or are they pretty much, you know, of the same ilk as far as trends and, and you know, portrayals and stuff like that? Yes and no. Uh, I would say generally TV carried over the same type of thing, but I noticed that probably the most intelligent analyses that were to come out, or the most promising ones that were to come out, came out on TV, and they were generally under Democratic administrations. Uh, one was the Outer Limits under Kennedy, which was toward the end of his administration. In fact, he uh, was killed on about the seventh episode of that show, I think. Ironically, their scariest episode came out the week that he was assassinated. And during Lyndon Johnson's tenure, Star Trek came out. Uh, I would say that Star Trek and Doctor Who probably have been the most positive, influential science fiction shows that have ever been put out. Okay. Those came out during Democratic administration. Yeah, it seems like that. Now, we're sort of like segueing and moving here into the 1960s, so uh, that's like sort of like the year of Star Trek and Doctor Who and The Outer Limits, right? Those yes, are, you know, those decade are all in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, they were from approximately 63 to... What about 69, I'd say? I mean, Doctor Who was ongoing, obviously, and, and Star Trek is a major franchise. Yeah, both uh, Who and Star Trek still going strong. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised Outer Limits hasn't... Well, they try to make a comeback, I think, for uh, They did make it. They made a very successful comeback. The, the new show was nowhere near as good as the original one. It wasn't bad. Uh, it was nowhere near as good as the original one, though. And it, it was not focusing anywhere near as much on actual UFO material. Yeah, and what I found interesting about... Because uh, you do an amazing job, of course... Uh, sort of dissecting The Outer Limits, and we'll stay on that for a moment here, and just uh, how was the shows were about 
first contact and, and sort of looking at it from a number of different ways and angles, which is really refreshing compared to what I had read about earlier in the book and what we had talked about earlier, which was just this glut of silly movies and stuff. It was like, finally, something has come along here that's taking a serious look at this. Let me tell you what's most refreshing about The Outer Limits in particular. And again, we're talking about the 1963 to 1965 version, the original. It was intelligent. It didn't take a wide-eyed wonder view. It didn't take a view that they were evil creatures here to dissect us. It took a view of an intelligent human being looking at an unknown phenomenon coming from outside and trying to make sense of it and looking at it from the other person's perspective. In other words, it put us into perspective. It's like saying, you know what? Just like H.P. Lovecraft said, we're not even top of the food chain. There are things above us. But what does that mean exactly? What sort of relationship do we have to them? What do they want from us? What can we expect from them? Is it possible to have realistic conversation with them? Can we meet as equals? Do we have reason to be afraid of them? And there were episodes where, yes, they said, yeah, we might have reason, reason to be afraid of them. And there were other ones where they said, you know what? Uh, these guys are probably just like us, and they're just very intelligent beings, and they're trying to learn some things, and they're meeting with some flack. And they analyzed every single one of these aspects extremely well, I think, uh, and certainly in a way that did not – they never insulted my intelligence. And I don't think they insulted anyone in the audience's intelligence, and I admire that. Yeah, there's a stark difference between that and, and what it preceded it. really does make you think how that came out of a previous decade of just junk. It's just weird. Yeah, and, and it is. It's almost like a little oasis in the middle of nothing. Uh, when you're suddenly getting an intelligent take on all of this, and mind you, it still had you know super cheap special effects and all that type of thing, but to this day, it's a major cult hit, and I mean, it, it grew just like Star Trek did over the years until it became legendary. And, and the TNT used to have semi-annual marathons that they would run of, uh, of Outer Limits all night long, and they were extremely successful. Now, do you think that uh, – now, this is obviously like psychoanalyzing and theorizing, but that's what we're here to do, I guess. Um, sure. Do you think that sort of that – refreshing, thoughtful look at, uh, you know, the possibility of contact and everything may have been born out of Kennedy's proclamation that they're going to space and all that stuff, because it seems like now yes. you... Okay. <laughs> yes, just to make it simple. I believe Kennedy was a very... Let me just say this right up. For any of his faults, Kennedy was my favorite president. I think he was an extremely forward-thinking man. Uh, I believe he genuinely had everyone's best interests at heart and not just a privileged class. Uh, and I believe that he very much wanted to disseminate the information that he knew. Uh, he was not going to be able to do that, and he knew it. There have been other presidents like him. Jimmy Carter was the same way. I think Ronald Reagan, as misguided as he might have been, I believe he felt the same way also. Yeah, that's kind of like what I was thinking here just now uh, as we were talking about it, that maybe you know, Kennedy said we're going to go to space, and then it was like uh, all of a sudden going to space and everything mm -hmm. became real and not a subject of uh, you know something that couldn't happen. Absolutely. Now, recognize when he came into office, he was coming in right in after Ike, who was a very popular president, uh, and who had come to a lot of realizations by the time he came out of office. Now, any new incoming president is going to be given a briefing by the old president. They're going to have a meeting in the office uh, so you can get caught up to speed. Uh, Say, so now, now that you've won, now that you've played the game, let me wear the honeymoon off of you really fast. Here's where the hangover hits. <laughs> and they start telling you the reality of what's taking place. It's like, look, you know what the news has had to say about what's going on with the Russians in this particular area? Well, let me tell you how bad it really is. And you start getting your real briefings. You know, the former president is telling you the former intelligence establishment is going to sit you down and put you with the National Security Council and catch you up to speed. And then you got to roll your, 
your shirt sleeves up and dig your elbows in because it's some really serious stuff. So no matter what your personal take on something is, you can't just walk in and change the whole establishment. Uh, you are inheriting the stuff that came from the administration before. And you're going to have to deal with that at the same time that you are trying to implement what you want to do. So anything that Kennedy was going to do took a while. I mean, bear in mind, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, we had all kinds of stuff that were taking place during his administration. And the Cuban Missile Crisis was extremely serious stuff. I mean, most of the world thought, or at least in America, uh, we're dead. <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah. this is it. And, you know, we've wondered about the, the, wondered about the nuclear nightmare. Here it is. So everyone felt like they dodged a bullet on that one very realistically. But there were, you know, three or four hours where it was the day the Earth stood still. They were all holding their breath and saying, oh, my God, I'm never going to see my kids again. And oh, it's man. after that, he's dealing with all this serious stuff. And he's still in the MK Ultra project is still going on. By the way, there's a story on that one when it comes to the Manchurian candidate, by the time we ever get to that. Uh, Kennedy helped Frank Sinatra come up with the money to complete the Manchurian candidate, which was all about uh, a mind-controlled uh, assassin out to kill a presidential candidate. Wow. And it was pulled from release because Kennedy was killed. <laughs> so, no multiple ironies there. Yeah, that is strange. That is that's really weird, actually. Wow. Well, you do make a point in the book around this time frame that we're talking about Star Trek and Outer Limits and stuff that just a lot of folks who were in the entertainment industry had an interest in UFOs and had their own UFO experiences. And I just sort of wanted to get your take on what seems to be, and I know Stan Friedman's written about this at length recently, sort of like the anti-UFO stance of, you know, the, the more famous sci-fi writers of, of this era, I guess you'd say, or the, the recent era, uh, you know, Asimov and Ben Bova and Carl Sagan. It seems like they're all anti-UFO, which is kind of surprising considering a lot of these UFO stories that we're talking about in the 50s movies and the 60s movies and throughout all this stuff, you know, was born out of sci-fi. Well, the others I can't say too much about, but Sagan I can say a lot about. Uh, Sagan, first off, was the government guy studying all of our information coming from the Mars probes. Remember that right from the start. Mm -hmm. He was the guy studying the data. He knew everything. He knew exactly what was going on. And he talked out of both sides of his mouth his entire life. When you got him up in front of the cameras, if he brought anything up about UFOs, you go, oh, well, there are billions and billions of worlds, and uh, suppose uh, someone must be out there somewhere. But you get him at an American Astronautical Society meeting in 1966, and in front of all of them, he'll say that it's entirely probable that the world was visited up to 10,000 times in antiquity by alien races, and that there were probably artifacts of those visits left on Earth, on the Moon, Mars, and possibly Venus. So he talked out both sides of his mouth. It depended on who he was talking to. Interesting. Okay. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4 and Volume 1 of the Rocks Trilogy. Obviously, Bruce is going to be back next week and the week after that for Volumes 2 and 3. Come on back as we continue this really amazing conversation. While you're waiting for Volume 2 to get posted at BOA, you might want to swing on over to Amazon.com and order Hollywood vs. the Aliens. I can't put this book over enough. It is just fascinating and remarkably detailed. Definitely a worthwhile read for any serious student of ufology. So head on over to Amazon.com, order Hollywood vs. the Aliens, then you can follow along with what we're talking about here during the Rux Trilogy. And now we move on to BOA Audio listener feedback. Got a couple of unique emails here. One's just sort of a general comment on Bigfoot of all creatures, and the other one is 
a little bit of a frightening one, so just prepare yourselves, folks. The first one here comes from Desmond. No hometown listed, but I love the name, Desmond. Here's what Desmond has to say. I keep wondering, how long is it going to take Bigfoot researchers to figure out that Bigfoot isn't a flesh-and-blood creature? It's actually a demon, spirit being. For this reason, it will never be discovered, so they're only wasting their time looking for it. Also, it's the reason why a dead body hasn't been found. Demons can take many forms, such as animal, alien, and or a creature like Bigfoot. Proof that Bigfoot is a demon is in sighting reports such as vanishing instantly, being invisible, glowing red eyes, and immune to gunfire. Check out the websites Unknown Creatures and High Desert Bigfoot Research. Signed, Desmond. Very interesting point, Desmond. I appreciate you writing in. I presume that this email may be in response to the Philip Spencer episode we did way back in February, because we haven't really done a Bigfoot one in quite a while. I definitely have a foot in the paranormal Bigfoot camp. I find the creature to be almost too puzzling to be anything but having some kind of outside-of-the-norm reasoning behind it. I don't know if it's definitely a flesh-and-blood animal. I have my serious doubts about that. So I uh, give credence to what you have to say, Desmond. I don't know about demon, though. Does that mean he's evil? I don't consider the Bigfoot necessarily evil, considering we don't have too many reports of Bigfoot attacking people or anything like that. But you also go on to say here, spirit being. So maybe you just mean sort of uh, some kind of ephemeral creature of some kind. I don't know. But anyway, interesting point. Bigfoot as a demon. We have uh, put your word out there to the BOA Audio listeners. Check out those websites that Desmond mentioned, Unknown Creatures and High Desert Bigfoot Research for more information. And, uh, you know, keep an eye out for the Bigfoot. Could be a demon. We don't know. The next email is a little bit troubling, my friends. I'm a little concerned about this one, and here's what it is. comes from a guy by the name of Daniel. I've actually corresponded with him since we got the email, and uh, I'm troubled. I'm troubled. Here's what he has to say. Love your show. Fascinating. For your information, it appears the amazing Bill Zabel's ColumbineConspiracy.com site is down. Any idea what happened? I should have copied the whole site when I had the chance. I hope Bill is okay. Any info would be greatly appreciated. Signed, Daniel. This is why I find this troubling, folks. I actually got this email last week, right around when we were putting together the 11.11 episode, and I was going to include this in the listener email, called William Zabel's house to get a word in with him to find out what was going on, got no answer, called again later after we posted the episode, still no answer, shoot him an email, no response, Call him this afternoon before we tape the show. A week later, still no answer from William Zabel. We're putting out an all-points bulletin on William Zabel. As I said, I'm a little bit troubled by this. His other website, phantomchasers.net, is still up. But columbineconspiracy.com is down. And we don't know where William Zabel is at this point. And hopefully he'll turn up soon and get back in touch with me. I'm going to keep trying to call him. I'm going to keep sending him emails. And I'm going to keep you all informed about what's going on with William Zabel, because it is troubling. His material is tantalizing. You would not believe the feedback we got on the William Zabel edition of BOA Audio this past April. Flooded the mailbox at BOA HQ. So many people enjoyed that episode. So many people listened to it and were really taken aback by what Bill had to say. And 
I'm tweaked out. I hope nothing happened to him because it's probably my fault because he hadn't really done too many other interviews. And uh, now he's missing in action right after appearing on Banal of America Audio. So, William Zabel, if you're out there, get in touch with us. We're worried about you, buddy. We want ColumbineConspiracy.com back up and running. And I'm tweaked. I'm really tweaked out, folks. I don't want to oversell this. I don't want to make too big a deal out of this. He could be on vacation, you know, down in Argentina like that governor there. Hopefully he turns up soon and uh, he's doing well and he's okay. But I will stay on this story and keep you all posted on what's going on with Bill Zabel and ColumbineConspiracy.com. So there you have it, two emails, Desmond and his demonic Bigfoot, and Daniel with the All Points Bulletin call for help on Bill Zabel and ColumbineConspiracy.com. I'm going to keep you abreast of what's going on with that as I find out any more information. Stay tuned to the end of the program next week for an update, or if it's something major and big, we'll have it at BOA. Don't worry about that for sure. Thank you to Daniel for getting the word to me about this, and uh, I'll do my best work in my connections to see what we can find out. That's BOA Audio listener feedback for this week. If you want to take part in future editions of Banal of America Audio's ever-expanding listener feedback segment, here's how you do it. There's three primary methods. First, you can go to Banal of America and click the contact button. Or you can just punch up your email account and fire off an email to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Pretty simple. And the final method is a little bit more interactive. You join up at the official Banal of America forum the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. We got threads there for all the different episodes of Banal of America. I post there quite often. We got a great group of folks there talking about all things esoteric and non esoteric. Awesome community. We'd love to have you. We welcome newcomers with open arms. Join up at the US of E and participate in the ongoing conversations. Those are the three methods, contact button, email, and forum. Any of those puts your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. I love hearing from the listeners. I want to hear your questions, comments, critiques, guest suggestions, anything you want to say. Send it off to me. Make it pithy, and we'll put it on the program in BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Let me roll through the list of the infamous and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. They are producing some tremendous material at Been All of America week in and week out. Let me give you a little thumbnail look at what they have posted at the website this past week since you last heard from me. Tina Senna returned to the website with her column Esotericana this time around titled Parallel Worlds and Why Some Things Aren't From Around Here, a really interesting and comprehensive look at the whole Parallel Worlds theories that are out there. Definitely want to check that one out, Parallel Worlds and Why Some Things Aren't From Around Here, Tina Senna's Esotericana at Banal of America. Then Regan Lee checked in this past Monday with The Animals Are Signaling, all about weird animal behavior ranging from all different sorts of creatures to all different sorts of behavior and really trying to figure out what this all might mean. Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm, the animals are signaling. And then just yesterday at the website we posted Leslie's Gray Matters, titled Things That Don't Matter in the Grand Scheme of It All. 
piggybacking on her piece last week about the whole alien base rumors at Dulce. Leslie talks about how you can't be stuck on one theory, really, in the world of ufology, especially when, if you look at it from an outsider's perspective or a big-picture perspective, we just don't know much at all about UFOs. So, to quibble about the little details of ufology and UFO theories is really, as Leslie says, not something that matters in the grand scheme of it all. Another thoughtful piece from Leslie, definitely breaking the fourth wall down of UFO studies. Gotta love that stuff. That's Leslie's Gray Matters, things that don't matter in the grand scheme of it all, also at Banal of America. So come on over to the website, check out those three new columns from the great BOA writers, Tina Senna, Regan Lee, and Leslie. And, of course, tons more on the way at BOA. Richard Thomas, due back any day now at the website. And A.M. Murphy's got a great piece she sent to me earlier this week. We'll have up for you next Wednesday at the website. So, lots of great reading material for the hardcore esoteric researchers and the casual paranormal enthusiasts at Benall of America. We say it all the time here on the show, but we mean it, and it's true. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. And if you're someone who's just listening here for the first time ever, the website URL is, of course, www.binallofamerica.com. Check it out. Chances are you're a long-time listener of the show, so you know what comes next here in the program. It's where I take my hat off and pass it around the room and ask you great folks to make donations. We don't need to bemoan the financial crisis here every week. It's getting depressing, honestly. But we'll just say, you know, we don't want folks who can't afford it to make donations. We want you to save the money, spend it on things you really need, like food and rent. And when times turn around, help us out when you get the chance. That's cool with me. I totally understand. I know there are a lot of folks out there, however, who do have some disposable income and can help us out. Those are the folks we turn to here at the end of the show and ask them to make donations. How do you do that? Simple. Go to Banal of America. Go to the BOA Audio Archive page. There's a PayPal button right there. You click that. PayPal will walk you through the process. It's quite simple. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio and keeping the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and ad-free for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Yikes, I feel like I've been talking forever here uh, on the end of the show, but we got one more little segment here to wrap it up, of course, and that is the preview for next week's program. You already know who the guest is, Bruce Rocks. It's Volume 2, also known as The Program. Why do we call it that? Simple, it's really the meat and potatoes of this lengthy conversation. It's really the heart of the matter. We're going to talk about a whole host of different sci-fi, UFO, and esoteric films and how they fit into Bruce's theory on a UFO education program. Just some of the stuff we're going to be talking about. Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry and The Nine, The X-Files, Doctor Who, The Quatermass Trilogy, and the James Bond films, plus tons and tons more. I just scratched the surface there. Those are the big ones. A ton of little ones, too, that otherwise might have slipped through the cracks. Fireball XL5 being one of them, and a bunch more. I couldn't list them. I'd be here all day, to tell you the truth. Plus, we're going to compare and contrast the differences in U.K. versus U.S. TV and films and how they handled UFOs, 
as well as the entertainment that came out of Japan during this time period and how they portrayed the UFO phenomenon. Very fascinating stuff from Bruce there, covering a whole bunch of different international aspects to what may have been going on here in this education program. We're also going to bring the timeline up to the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. We're going to talk about how the Jimmy Carter presidency ushered in a whole new era of pro-UFO films. Despite Carter's pro-UFO leanings, there were some anti-UFO films from that administration as well. We're going to hear about those. We're going to find out about the transition to Reagan as president and how it changed the portrayal of UFOs and aliens in films and TV shows. Some of the movies we're going to be talking about, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of course, Alternative 3 out of the UK, Star Wars, Superman, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and a whole bunch more. That's just a handful of the movies we're going to be talking about next week on the program with Bruce Rux. In two weeks, we're going to conclude the whole trilogy here with Volume 3, The Postscript. That's going to be posted the week of July 6th. We're going to wrap up our discussion on Hollywood vs. the Aliens, discuss the George Bush and Bill Clinton years, culminating in the publication of the book in 1997. We're going to get some perspective on how things have shaped up since the book came out, what Bruce thinks of a variety of films and TV shows from 1997 to 09, and where he sees things headed in the future. We're also going to peel back the layers a little bit and find out more about where Bruce has been these last nine years and what he may be working on for the future. That's in two weeks. That's volume three, also known as The Postscript. And on that note, we close the book here on the program. Big, big thanks once again to Bruce Rux. Also, of course, want to thank the great BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. Thank you for making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.